Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, our seventh and final session on the Consolation of Philosophy, ending this particular chapter of the Mythgard Academy. Um, we are going to finish tonight. If that means I go extra long, it means I go extra long. I'm leaving with my family next week. Uh, my family is, uh, is uh, scheduled to go on a trip next week. I am not at all sure I'm going to be available, and I don't want to stretch it out past that. So, by golly, we're going to finish it uh, uh, tonight. That means, and I'm not even going to lie, I've got 33 slides tonight, and we're getting through all of them. So it's going to be great. Though, a bunch of it is... Uh, is not uh, uh, Boethius. That is not direct discussion. Because remember how last week I said uh, I, I didn't uh, I didn't have time to include uh, Tom's wonderful lingering on the Latin, which is really fun. Uh, so we're going to do that uh, for this time. And uh, I also got an extra uh, uh, piece of uh, uh, discussion on the Anglo-Saxon adaptation from Richard Rowland, which we're going to do as well at the end. And those two combined are quite a few slides. So we'll see what we can do. But okay, this is going to happen, and I've got some caffeine, and I'm ready to go. Um, all right, so, oh, first of all, okay, an announcement, or kind of a non-announcement. I was hoping to have this schedule for the treason of Isengard ready before class tonight, but I totally don't. Um, however, I can tell you when the treason of Isengard is going to begin, and that is going to be three weeks from tonight, uh, which I believe is, uh, what is that, the 19th of, uh, of July, Wednesday, again, Wednesday night, normal, normal uh, uh, weekly slot, but it'll be, uh, it'll be the third Wednesday of July, yeah, yeah, July 19th, thanks James, um, so yes, July 19th, Wednesday, July 19th, that's going to be our start date uh, for the Treason of Isengard, uh, and after that, we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to, go through. Now, I'm planning as before, as we did with Return of the Shadow, I'm going to take my time with the Treason of Isengard, because this is a big deal, right? This is looking at the growth and development of the Lord of the Rings as it happens, right? So, you know, we want to take our time with this. We ended up taking, what did we do? Like 16 weeks on the Return of the Shadow or something like that? We'll probably do something similar. Um, which means it's going to take us into it's going to take us into fall. My goal is to be done with it, is to finish the Treason of Isengard before Bilbo's birthday. That's that's the hope. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what happens there. Um, okay, <laughs> all right. Karita is pledging uh, to lead me towards tempting tangents. That's uh, uh, that's that's uh, going to distract me away. But no, we're going to finish. We're just we're going to do it. I don't care, Karita. I'll, we have to stay up for four hours. I'll do it. Uh, it's going to happen. Tonight's the last class, so there we are. The only question is uh, how many uh, how many hours the the session's going to be tonight. Anyway, all right. Uh, so let's uh, let's let's jump into it. <laughs> Druid's fire. I like that. She just said, "Hooray for the treason of Isengard!" And then it was like, "Wait, hang on a second. That's not. That doesn't sound right." Uh, yeah, I totally know what you mean. Okay, so the Treason of Isengard is going to be super fun. I recommend, you know, get started reading uh, on that. We're going to work our way through that slowly and deliberately, and it's going to be great. Um, but for now, let's get to the grand finale of the Boethius class. Uh, and I'm going to start, as I've already said, um, let's, uh, let's begin. So we're going to be talking about God, uh, free will and God's foreknowledge tonight. So it's, you know, it's going to be good. First, let's go back to Tom's lingering on the Latin here. 
I'm not going to read uh, the entire Latin uh, prose here, or the, the entire Latin version. This is book five, uh, book three, poem ten, um, that uh, that uh, Tom has given to us here, and you can see by the color coding here the corresponding terms we're going to be discussing uh, as we go through. So here's Tom's uh, sort of literal line by line translation of the poem. Come here, all you prisoners, whom deceitful lust, which dwells in earth-bound minds, binds in chains of wickedness. Here you will find rest from labors, here a haven waiting in gentle peace, here a single refuge open to all the wretched. No gift which the Tagus bestows with its sands of gold, or the Hermus with its red-gold banks, or the Indus which, at the edge of the torrid zone, mixes emeralds with shining white pearls. None of these gifts could illuminate your vision, rather than fixing your blind minds in a darkness of their own. Whatever pleases and stirs our minds, this the earth nurtures in its deepest caverns, but the splendor by which the heavens are ruled and flourish shuns the dark ruins of our minds. Whoever takes note of this light will deny that Phoebus's rays shine bright. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, Curita is hearing echoes of, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Uh, yeah, that does kind of sound like that a little bit there, doesn't it, Carita? Um, okay, all right, so let's hear, let's, we'll uh, flip back to this here as we need to. Uh, here's Tom's commentary. This poem marks a good contrast with Book 2, Poem 8, which we looked at last time, so the last lingering on the Latin that we did. Notice how here it is lust, libido, that binds, ligat, instead of love, amor. So remember that was the love poem, right? And we looked at the, the list of, uh, of all of those things that are then bound together by love at the end, and, and that was like, you know, fun with an inflected language to see how the, 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 the subject and the verb could be put off till the very end, uh, as we had the, that, um, um, uh, that, that big old list. Okay, all right. Um, notice how here it is lust, libido, that binds, ligat, instead of love, amor. But there are no eternal treaties, no harmonies, no regular procession of sun and moon. Here there are chains and darkness, which deny the wretched peace, uh, rest, peace, and safety. So on the one hand, uh, this poem sort of begins, right, uh, as he's pointing out here, with the, de- the deceitful lust, uh, right, the, uh, uh, the, the libido up here, which dwells in earthbound minds, binds in chains of wickedness. Right? So just as uh, love binds all things together into this beautiful, harmonious order, so lust also binds, but here it binds in chains of weakness, in chains which merely restrict, right? which confine uh, 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 the, the blinded mind in darkness and prison. Um, so they're opposite, but they're kind of not opposite, right? That is both bind. And you see how that's kind of, it's kind of like the false roads, right? Um, lust binds things just like love binds, right? But it's all the difference in the world, uh, just as it's all the difference in the world between going to the right house and going to the wrong house, right? When you're trying to go home, uh, even if the houses look alike. Uh, so there's all the difference in the world between being constrained by lust and being bound together as part of the big, uh, beautiful, harmonious system uh, by love. Okay. The three gold and gem-bearing rivers he mentions are in Iberia, Anatolia, and India, and thus indicate uh, that from the farthest east to the farthest west, the most delightful riches of the earth not only fail to illuminate our vision, but rather establish our minds in a darkness all our own. Since our minds are already blind, kaikos, 
and the riches of the earth come from the deepest darkness below the earth, the riches could not do otherwise, right? Uh, so that's lovely. The, uh, the uh, directions uh, are really fun, right? From the Tagus, the Hermes, and the Indus. Uh, so clearly from, uh, from Spain to India, that's one end of the civilized world to the other, right? That's one end of the Roman Empire to the other. Um, and I love Tom's points here about the, the darkness of our minds, right? The, those, those gems, those beautiful things taken from the earth, those things which are so attractive, and, 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 but in the end really just symbols of, of the desire by which we're bound, right? Okay, all right, so let's keep going. Aureus Herenus describes more than the color of the sand in Tagus. So let's go back and look at this line again, right? Non quiquid tegus aureus harenus, donat aut hermos rutilante ripa. Right? No gift which the tegus bestows with its sands of gold, nor the hermus with its red gold banks, or the indus which at the edge of the torrid zone mixes emeralds with shining white pearls. Can, can, candidis miscens verides lapilos. Those are the lines we're going to be talking about next here. Okay. Um, Aureus Herenius describes more than the color of the sand in Tagus. There is gold in that sand, and some gold ores were reddish in color because of impurities, like copper. There is a phrase in one of the poems of Verontius Fortunatus which uses the phrase rut, rut, rutilantior auro, redder than gold. Thus, rutilante ripa also suggests gold in the sands of the river. Think of people panning for gold. So both of those first two rivers, right... Uh, as we again going back to the poem here, right? The Tagus and the Hermes have uh, the 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 sand of their banks is mixed with gold, right? Okay, the pearls we'll talk about later. Hook, hick, hawk, and hike are all related. Hook is an adverb meaning to this place, while the other three are simply this in different grammatical genders. The latter three pick up on the first, as I've tried to show with here, right? So again, that that's the poetic repetition that we get at the beginning, right? Come here, all you prisoners. Hook. Here you will find rest from your labors. Here a haven waiting in gentle peace. Here a single refuge open to all the wretched. And we get that repetition, notice at the beginning of the lines, right? In the Latin, hike, hick, hawk. Okay. All right. There is a rough distinction between animus and anima. Uh, so let's go back and, and just... Uh, uh, look at that there. Okay. Um, yeah, that's uh, this down here. So, uh, in suas condut animos tenebras, fixing your blind minds in a darkness of their own, and then uh, obscuras animae ruinas, um, uh, uh, shuns the dark ruins of our minds. Um, right? Yes. Okay. Okay, there's a rough distinction between animus and anima. The first is more what we would call mind, the second soul. Nonius Marcellus, an ancient grammarian, distinguishes the two thus, animus est quo sapimus, anima est qua vivimus. The animus is that by which we know, the soul is that by which we live. Here the difference may be between the rational and the animal souls, but I'm not enough on my philosophy to say for sure. Now, it may seem odd that Boethius believed pearls could be found in a river, 
But for the Romans, India was almost as far away as Mars is for us, and people today think there are faces and pyramids on Mars. More than that, however, Boethius is alluding to a phrase of Horace, who refers to a woman inter nibios viridesque lapilos, amid her pearls and emeralds. Here, as with Boethius's lapilis, lapilos, small stones, does double duty. Literally, we have amid snow-white and green stones, while in Boethius, we literally have mixing green stones with shining white ones. While we're at it, don't miss the repetition of candidos in the last line, right? That is, uh, so the, the, notice the echo there, how it's the, the white stones, right? The, the, uh, the, the, the pearls are candidis, white, here. Uh, and at the end of the poem, we get a repetition, at, again, at the beginning of the line of that word, candidos, uh, which is here white, shining whiteness of Phoebus's rays, right, of the rays of the sun. So we have here in Boethius's verse the intrinsic contrast between the shining whiteness and desirable whiteness of pearls, right, and the shining whiteness of the rays of the sun, uh, contrasting the bright, uh, sort of heavenly radiance, right, with the glory of uh, of sort of uh, you know of, of worldly things. All right, sorry. Anyway, where, where we go? Okay. Uh, right. Okay. But with all this talk of pearls and sand and shores, I think we may have found a source, if not the source, for Tolkien's sand of pearls in elven land. From Horace to Boethius to Tolkien, we have the great chain of reading. Um, it is really interesting to see that mixture of gems and pearls uh, in the sand there. Um, it's it's interesting to me. I, I, I'm I'm not 100% sure that I'm totally convinced by it, Tom. I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's a great connection. Would he have known this, obviously? Might he have been thinking of this? Yes. What puzzles me is that it, it would seem, then, that he's kind of taking it a little bit out of context, that Tolkien would have been taking it a little out of context, or is he, right? Does it suggest, um, let me argue this around the other way, Tom. If Tolkien is getting, the, you know, if if when he describes the uh, the sand of pearls and the the, the jewels strewn upon the shores uh, of of Valinor, um, if he's if when he's describing that, he is at least subconsciously remembering this poem from Boethius and all of this uh, shining jeweled and pearl filled sands uh, that Boethius is describing here. Um, which and I agree with Tom that the the connection back through Horace makes it the more likely um, that uh, Tolkien would have had that in mind. If he did have that in mind, does that inform? Uh, does it fit with or inform our uh, reading of the Silmarillion in some sense? And I wonder, right? Because of course, in the context of the Boethius poem, the pearls and gems in the sand are not a good thing. Right, I mean, like our desire for the, they're 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 contrasted again with the with the divine radiance, right? They're this is um, they're like pathetic things again. It's the the lust for dirt, essentially, right? The 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 sand in the banks of of rivers uh, that chains us in blindness and darkness, right? That imprisons us. Um, and we're being invited in this poem to come, you know, come 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 be free of this. Um, is that 
relevant, right? Is there, um, um, does that illuminate in some way uh, uh, our reading of that passage of the Silmarillion? I, you know, I'm not sure it doesn't fit in some sense. On the one hand, we have the glory of Valinor, and I don't see it really being done in sort of a negative sense, but then again, we've got the gems of the Noldor, right? And if there's certainly lots of precedent for thinking about the desire of the Noldor uh, for their gems, right, as being something which sort of blinds and binds them and into sort of a prison of desire, right? I mean, the Oath of Feanor certainly suggests that. Um, but then again, but then again, on the other hand, I guess this is my third or fourth hand here, um, the strewing of the gems on the beaches of Valinor seems to be one of the like untainted actions of the Noldor, right? You know, that's what they're doing when they're freely bestowing uh, their gems upon all rather than hoarding them for themselves. So that doesn't seem to me to be a, a really kind of uh, sort of negative thing. Um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I definitely, I'd, I'd, I'd have to think about it more. Um, again, as an image, I can definitely see it working uh, in thinking through the way in which the image is being used in the context, uh, in their contexts. Um, I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's, I'm not sure that it works as well, but it's a really neat connection uh, and really fun to think about. All right, I, I, I better plow on ahead. Thank you, Tom, so much for all of your uh, your, your fun analysis of the Latin. It's been really great uh, to uh, 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 to see. I, I really appreciate your assistance uh, with that. This is again, as I've said before, this is our first time we've done a translation, uh, and uh, it's um, it's it's good to it's good to, to be able to to come back to the original here. All right. Let us return to where we left off last time, which was about to ask and begin to answer the big question that you guys kept asking last time uh, when we were going through uh, her answers about providence. We're talking about providence and fate, right? Um, And of course, the emphasis is really on providence. Fate is just the playing out of providence. Providence is the really big deal. Right. Providence is the plan of the entire scope of history, Um, you know, all of creation, not only in space, but in time, which God conceives in this in the perfect simplicity of his knowledge. Uh, That is providence. He knows all things. Everything is part of the providential plan. Everything that happens. So, of course, the question you guys all started asking right away is, but then what about free will? Right. So, okay. so here's Boethius's. uh, 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 response, having just received the clarification about chance, uh, which we looked at last time, at the end of last time, and how thoroughly Tolkienian the concept of, uh, the, you know, Boethius's concept of chance is. I have listened carefully, or rather, of course, we should say how thoroughly Boethian Tolkien's idea of chance is. I have listened carefully and agree that chance is as you say, but within this series of connected causes, does our will have any freedom, or are the motions of human souls also bound by the fatal chain? Fatal, of course, in the literal and philosophical sense, the chain of fate. Right. Um, now, one thing I want I want to recall to you uh, from her initial definition of providence and fate, she listed a bunch of things like all the stuff that have all the things that do stuff, right? And she listed them all as being 
agents of fate. So again, providence is the 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 the, the conceived plan of God in in simplicity. Fate is how that's played out. But she talked about the, the, the choices of particular agents. Remember, like planetary intelligences or, or uh, 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 like, you know, angelic powers or demons or human beings, right? All of these things, like everything that every, anybody does, they're enacting fate, right? They're all instruments, of God's providence in making fate happen. Um, this is important to the to the current context in that she was acknowledging, um, she seemed to to imply already that human wills mattered, right? In that they were agents of fate, right? They were they were they were some of the things that played that made fate play out, right? Um, that implemented providence. So okay, so she's acknowledged the existence of human will and human choice, and now Bo- Boethius is is worried about it, right? Um, you know, are the are the motions of human souls bound by the fatal chain, or do does our will have any freedom? There is free. So here's her simple answer: there is free will, and no rational nature can exist which does not have it. No rational nature can exist which does not have it. So, to have reason means having free will. It's impossible to be both rational and have your will bound, according to Eddie philosophy. For any being which by its nature has the use of reason must also have the power of judgment by which it can make decisions and by its own resources distinguish between things which should be desired and things which should be avoided. Now everyone seeks that which he judges to be desirable, but rejects whatever he thinks should be avoided. Therefore, in rational creatures, there is also freedom of desiring and shunning. If you can analyze things and make a choice, you have to have a free will, by definition. If you don't have a free will, then you're not really analyzing and choosing, right? So if you have a real rational being, you have free will. This is not a question, right? Um, Now, one of the things, of course, that you'll notice, and these were terms that got raised last time, right, Um, were, okay, is it about predestination or is it about foreknowledge? Of course, as you know, Boethius is going to go on and Lady Philosophy is going to go on to focus on foreknowledge. Why do they focus on foreknowledge instead of what might seem to be the bigger question of predestination? Um, But this is why they don't dwell on the question of predestination. Predestination in the sense of you are just an automata doing what you're pre-programmed to do, they're rejecting that from the beginning, right? If that's true, I mean, if you're predestined in that sense, if you're just following a script, maybe you don't know the script, right? Um, You know, but if you are like a computer program running out its code, then you're not even really a rational creature, right? So, but so, again, what, what Boethius does and we see Boethius doing this throughout the book, right? Is saying, okay, given we have several premises, right? Which we accept, which have been a fundamental part of, uh, of our philosophy, you know, since Plato and Aristotle, but there seems to be a problem. Does it work? Can it work together, right? So the first impulse, Boethius's first impulse is never just to say, oh, well, okay, well, let's chuck out the, the, uh, the, 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 premises that we begin with, right? So again, we have premise, God's providence, premise, human freedom of the will, right? If it's, a, if the humans are rational creatures, then, then they have freedom of the will and they're not just running out code, right? So, okay, fine. If that's the case, can that work? Can you have both of those things at the same time? And that's why 
the focus is on foreknowledge because Boethi- what, that's what Boethius identifies as the real sticking point, right? The philosophical sticking point. He can see how freedom of the, you know a, a, a human being freely choosing could be an agent of fate, right? Could be a part of God's providential plan, and therefore not just predestined, but acting on their own and yet foreseen by God, right? Their actions are foreseen by God, and so therefore their actions are made a part of the pro- of the providential plan right that could all work out and 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 you can see how that could work out right um to say that god knows everything you know that god has everything planned out in advance doesn't necessarily have to mean there's not a logical conflict between that and you making your own choices right if god knows in advance what choice you're going to make then he can put you in the position that he wants you to be, knowing that you're going to make this choice totally freely, right? Uh, and then, but because he knows, remember what the emphasis was throughout book four, right? Because he knows the consequences of the, he knows if you make this particular choice, then it's going to have this impact on other people and other people are going to be making their other choices that he knows that they're going to make, although they're making them freely, right? But he's put, so he, he can kind of manipulate things and place the pieces where he wants them all to be so that when they make their own free choices, they do, you know, they end up bringing into effect all of the consequences and implications which they can't understand uh, and they can't foresee, but he can, right? Uh, Because of the greatness and the simplicity of the divine providential knowledge. So, um, so, okay, that, that, that works, right? Um, uh, This is why there's, he doesn't see any real problem between any, any necessary conflict between providence and free will. The problem, therefore, comes in with foreknowledge, because it's only foreknowledge that makes it work, right? Only if God knows in advance what you're going to do, what you're going to choose to do, can he arrange things so that it works out, right, and makes the picture that he ends up uh, wanting to make. Here's a, a, a silly illustration. This is a silly illustration, but um, I hope you will see what I mean, right? If So imagine you're wanting to paint a picture, but you're wanting to paint a picture with paintbrushes that have free will. So let's imagine that the paintbrushes are tied onto the tails of, like, I don't know, turtles or something, right? So you're going to let the turtles go, and they're dragging their paintbrush behind them. They can go wherever they want, right? You just let them go, and they do their thing right? Um, however, if you could see the future, right? If you knew, if you could see in advance, if you knew in advance what that turtle was going to choose to do and where it was going to choose to go, you would know what paint, what color paintbrush, right? To tie onto its tail, where to start it off and how to orient it and what other turtles to put around it, knowing how they're going to interact when they meet each other, right? And go around. And in the end, you could, you could, you could, bring about the painting of exactly the picture you wanted to do. It'd be hard, right? But you could do it if you were God, right? If you, if you had the, the, the computational capacity to be able to sort all that out. And if you knew for certain what they were going to do, it wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be controlling them, right? You're not, you know, these aren't remote control turtles, right? They're making their own choices. They're doing their own thing. Um, but you know enough to be able to figure that. So again, God's foreknowledge is the pivot point. Right? If God accurately foreknows everything, then he can arrange the free choices of people to come out the way that he wants them to come out, right? So that God's providence and free will can work together at the same time. 
That's why God's foreknowledge is the really crucial point. And that's why we end up emphasizing, we end up talking about God's knowledge and God's foreknowledge all the way through. Okay. Um, All right. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Jennifer asks if uh, the uh, the the turtle painters in question are uh, named things like Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael. Um, Jennifer, I'm not sure if I was subconsciously influenced to choose turtles as painters because of those particular name selections or not, but uh, uh, but uh, perhaps I was. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, okay. All right. So again, so foreknowledge. This is again. This is why. Well, this is what we're talking about. Okay. So so let's 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 move on here. Lady, this is part of Lady Philosophy. She's following up, right? So she's just said, yeah, absolutely, free will is totally a thing, no question. But I do not say that this freedom is the same in all beings. In supreme and divine substances, there is clear judgment, uncorrupted will, and effective power to obtain what they desire. Right. So. What she's doing here, right, you can see is like, hang on, we talk about free will. Well, some wills are freer than others, right? Human souls, however, are more free while they are engaged in contemplation of the divine mind, and less free when they are joined to bodies, and still less free when they are bound by earthly fetters. They are in utter slavery when they lose possession of their reason and give themselves wholly to vice. For when they turn away their eyes from the light of supreme truth to mean and dark things, right? All those people who 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 cease to seek the good and instead are focused entirely on material and worldly things, right? Focused on the goods of fortune instead of on ultimate good. They are blinded by a cloud of ignorance and obsessed by vicious passions. By yielding and consenting to these passions, they worsen the slavery to which they have brought themselves and are, as it were, the captives of their own freedom. Nevertheless, God, who beholds all things from eternity, foresees all these things in his providence and disposes each according to its predestined merits. Okay, so not all people are equally free, right? Because again... This is what, remember back those passages in book three, I'm pretty sure it was, uh, when he was talking, when Lady Philosophy was talking about how, like, when a person becomes vicious, they cease to be human, right? And then she did all that, like, the fun stuff, like, comparing different vices to different species of animal, right? Now, one of you, I think it might have been, Nick, I think it was you, uh, was commenting at the time and saying, gosh, you know, that this seems like a really dangerous kind of doctrine, right? That wicked people are subhuman, um, they're not even human anymore, like dangerous in the sense that it could be very dangerously uh, uh, applied, right? To say like, well, if you're wicked, then you're not really a human being. Then like, it doesn't matter if we, you know, annihilate you, for instance, because you're not really human like everybody else. Um, I agree, but notice where Lady Philosophy actually does go with it, right? Here we see sort of the final application of that concept. Um, they become less human in the sense that they deprive themselves of their free will. The more they become bound, uh, the more they bind themselves through their libido, right? Through their lust, as Tom was pointing out in that poem, uh, to worldly things. Um, 
so that they bind themselves with their lust instead of being bound into the will of God, right? Being bound to God through love uh, and being made a part of the beautiful interlocking system of the universe, right? Uh, the more they do that, the more they deprive themselves of their own free will, the less human they are. And by less human, that means they have less and less free will so that their wills are, are, are less and less their own. Um, Yes, and Stephen, if you uh, if you are hearing echoes of the New Testament teaching about uh, uh, people being slaves to sin, I would not at all consider that uh, consider that inappropriate. You know, I think that's exactly that's exactly the kind of thing. This brings me. I don't have time. I didn't have time to put it on a slide or anything. But uh, uh, Brick Tales, who was I, I remember being with us in exploring the War, the Lord of the Rings last night. Um, was asking about the, the... I'm going to pause for a second here. This is a planned digression, Carita, so I don't think you're getting to me. Um, uh, but anyway, so he was uh, he, he was thinking about these sort of biblical echoes that we can hear in Boethius and that I keep saying, yeah, if you hear it, I, I think it's totally there. It's not just you. Um, and he was saying, okay, so uh, how do we understand that? How do we interpret these echoes in Boethius? Uh, what do we do with it? And he, he gave three suggestions. One, nothing to see here, just coincidence. You know, maybe it's just us trying to impose something on Boethius. I don't think so. Two, there is a relationship between Boethius and the biblical stuff, uh, but just in that Boethius is very well read in scripture and therefore tends to use some of the same language and imagery, right? So he's not actually making like doctrinal connections. He's just, it's just, you know, he knows the Bible and so this kind of language sort of flows out of him. That's plausible. That kind of thing does happen. I don't think that's what's happening either. And the reason, by the way, I don't think that that's what's happening is because so many times you remember how lady philosophy so often comes down to what seems a really counterintuitive solution, right? Like there is no such thing as evil or uh, bad things don't happen to good people. Or the wicked never triumph, right? And the good, uh, uh, and and wicked is always uh, wickedness is always punished. Um, the, when she comes around to those things, they often it 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 often comes around, sounding to me very much like uh, uh, Boethius has, in the end, proven one of this sort of strange or. Uh, um, you know, difficult texts in the New Testament. Um, uh, that is to say, it works doctrinally. It's not just a, a linguistic echo. And so his third, uh, his third option, there is a relationship, and while Boethius is not depending on the authority of Scripture to make his points, those readers who know the Scripture are urged to interpret Boethius in light of the Bible passage, or at least to consider the interaction between the idea in Boethius and the idea in the Bible. That's much closer. I, that's that's what I would... Uh, something like that is pretty much what I would say. I think maybe the way that I would say it is, if you know the Bible, you will find that many of these biblical teachings, you know, especially, you know, a, a lot of these are New Testament teachings, uh, a lot of these New Testament teachings, you will find that Lady Philosophy comes around to agreeing with the New Testament, never just relying on biblical authority, right? Never just saying, we know this to be true because the Bible tells us so. But where we do find ourselves so often in the consolation of philosophy is arriving at a conclusion which turns out to be extremely consonant, if not an actual paraphrase, 
of one of those biblical teachings. Um, I don't think that this is necessarily like an apologetics thing, like Boethius is trying to prove the Bible true. I think that, but I do think that Boethius is sort of showing this kind of an alignment um, uh, between the logical conclusions of traditional Greco-Roman philosophy and the teachings of the Bible. Um, In the end, he gets to the same place sort of through uh through both um anyway okay all right uh so let's um let's carry on here's the poem at the end of his at at the end of his this first section about the freedom of the will the assertion of the freedom of the will he sees all things and hears all things sweet-voiced homer that's a quotation from homer sweet uh, describing the sun Sweet-voiced Homer sings of the clear light of bright Phoebus, but the sun's weak rays cannot pierce the bowels of the earth, nor the depths of the sea. It is not so with the creator of this great sphere. No mass of earth, no dark and clouded night can resist his vision, which looks down on all things. He sees at once, in a single glance, all things that are, or were, or are to come. Since he is sole observer of all things, you may call him the true sun. Um... Homer talks about the sun being able to see and hear all things, right? But it's not true. Right? It's an exaggeration. It's a poetic exaggeration when said of the sun, because the sun can't see all these things. And of course, we remember from the earlier poems that Tom was just reminding us of, right? The sun's weak, uh, weak rays cannot pierce the bowels of the earth. You know, those bowels of the earth where those beautiful gems come from? It cannot pierce into those dark prisons in which we are chained by our lusts, right? Um, but the creator of this great sphere can. No mass of earth, no dark and clouded night can resist his vision, which looks down on all things. God, the true sun, sees everything all at once in a glance, all things that are or were or are to come. Um, in this poem, Lady Philosophy, as she is so wont to do, Lady Philosophy has uh, given a preview of the entire rest of her argument. Right, uh, The argument of how does God's foreknowledge work um, how is it that, how could God's foreknowledge not undermine the idea of our free will? She's given the answer here in this poem. It'll take us a little bit of a while to get there in prose, but she just does it right here uh, in in verse. I love the way that Lady Philosophy's poems do that. We see this persistently throughout the book. She's giving spoilers, previews of what's to come. Uh a lot, you know, many people skip poems in books, and, you know, I've talked to people about this before. Uh, if in Boethius you do it the other way around, right, you just read the poems and skip the prose, you can get most of the argument, much more briefly, actually, uh, which is kind of fun. Okay. Prose 3. This is the Boethius character spelling out the final problem, and this is really interesting. Um, this is almost the last time the Boethius character talks, and it's the longest speech he's given since way back in book one when he was ranting, right, and complaining about he was how, how he'd been done wrong. Um, he is now in a much different place than he was before. Um, but Boethius gives to the Boethius interlocutor, right, into the Boethius speaker, the most sort of consistent and persuasive argument that he gets. He sets up the argument against God's foreknowledge, or rather against free will, um, 
Well, no, let me say this a different way. He sets up the argument for the conflict between God's pre God's foreknowledge and our free will. Uh, he sets that up very thoroughly, even going out of his way to eliminate what seem to be easy answers to the question, right? He's like, and don't give me this, and don't give me that, because that doesn't work either. This is seriously a problem, right? So let's look at the problem as the Boethius interlocutor sets it up here in Prose 3. There seems to be a hopeless conflict between divine foreknowledge of all things and freedom of the human will. For if God sees everything in advance and cannot be deceived in any way, whatever his providence foresees will happen, must happen. Therefore, if God foreknows eternally not only all the acts of men, but also their plans and wishes, there cannot be freedom of will. For nothing whatever can be done or even desired without its being known beforehand by the infallible providence of God. If things could somehow be accomplished in some way other than that which God foresaw, his foreknowledge of the future would no longer be certain. Indeed, it would be merely uncertain opinion, and it would be wrong to think that of God. So do you see the force of the problem here? The problem is is pretty simple. If God is 100% certain of what you're going to choose to do, right? If God's foreknowledge is absolute, if it is certain, if his providential vision is perfectly clear, if he is the true son seeing into all things, if he knows 100%, for 100% certainty, what you're going to do tomorrow, then what are the odds that you're going to do anything else? Zero! Because he is, he knows 100% for sure what you're going to do. So if there was a 0%, if there's a 0% chance that you're possibly going to do anything else, in what sense can you your will really be said to be free? You might think it's free, but it's an illusion, right? Because you never actually had a choice. God knew in advance. So if God knows in advance everything I'm going to do tomorrow, right, all the things that will seem to me like spontaneous choices... But they're not going to be, because God already knows what I'm going to do. And again, the problem is not just that he already knows, it's the absolute certainty of his knowledge. If he, again, if he knows a 100% chance I'm going to do this, there is a 0% chance I'm going to choose anything else, which means I wasn't actually free to do that. Um, It's already scripted. So it's not that, so notice he's not talking about us, again, like we're, like we're robots, like we're programmed, but we don't really have options, right? Um, okay. Um, all right, David uh, says, hang on, but his knowledge that a dropped basketball will inevitably bounce does not cause the bounce. No, but hang on, David. Boethi is going to deal with that with that explanation. He rejects that. The Boethius interlocutor rejects that explanation of things. I cannot, here we go, I cannot agree with the argument by which some people believe they can solve this problem. They say that the things do not happen because providence foresees that they will happen. But on the contrary, that providence foresees what is to come, what is to come because it will happen. And in this way, they find the necessity to be in things not in providence, right? So in other words, your choice is what causes the divine foreknowledge, right? Uh, It's not the divine foreknowledge that causes your action. And therefore, since it's your action that causes the foreknowledge, then your action can still be free. That's the counter-argument, David, right, that he's giving here. Um, And uh, uh, 
yeah, so, um, but Boethius rejects this, and he's about to explain why he rejects this. David, another thing that I would say, though, about your basketball uh, argument, you don't have foreknowledge of what's going to happen when you drop the basketball. You don't. I mean, you can predict with a fair degree of certainty. Um, I mean, basketballs, inflated basketballs, right, always have gone down to the ground when you've let them go, and when they hit the ground, they bounce. That's pretty much what you've always seen, but it's not absolutely what you've always seen, right? What if something comes and intercepts it halfway through, right? What if, for that matter, what if gravity starts working differently? You can't prove that it won't, right? All you have is a whole bunch of empirical evidence that suggests it's unlikely to do so, right? But you're, but logically speaking, your foreknowledge of what's going to happen when you let that basketball go is not absolute. It's not 100% certain. You might be 99% certain of what's going to happen, but it's not 100% certain. And the logical problem with God's foreknowledge is the 100% certainty of it, right? Because it's not just that God has a really good guess about what's going to happen. It's that God knows for sure what is going to happen. That's where the logical problem comes in. Um, Okay, all right, let's keep going. For example, if a man sits down the opinion that he is sitting must be true. Okay. And conversely, if the opinion that someone is sitting be true, then that person must necessarily be sitting. Okay, both it works both ways, right? So, uh, if he's sitting down, somebody who says he's sitting down is right. And similarly, if the statement, that man is sitting down, is right, then it must also be true that the man is sitting down. Okay, all right, fine. Therefore, there is necessity in both cases. The man must be sitting, and the opinion must be true. But the man is not sitting because the opinion is true. The opinion is true because the sitting came before the opinion about it. Therefore, even though the cause of truth came from one side, necessity is common to both. Okay, okay. Um... A similar line of reasoning applies to divine foreknowledge in future events. For even though the events are foreseen because they will happen, they do not happen because they are foreseen. So again, this is so David. This is the he, he he's giving this counterargument, right? Again, our it's our choices that cause God's knowledge, not God's knowledge that causes our actions. So there's no real problem. At least that's the counterargument that Boethius is quoting, but he doesn't agree with it. Nevertheless, it is necessary either that the things which are going to happen be foreseen by God, or that what God foresees will in fact happen. And either way, the freedom of the human will is destroyed. Let's do that again. It is necessary that either that the things which are going to happen be foreseen by God, or that what God foresees will in fact happen. And either way, the freedom of the human will is destroyed. In other words, going going back for a second, the the business about the man sitting, right? He says, look, there's necessity either way, but the cause only goes one way, right? The person sat down, and it is the sitting down that caused the opinion, right? It's only because you saw the dude sitting down that you're like, that dude is sitting down, right? And so therefore, the sitting is what caused the opinion. The opinion didn't cause the sitting. So the cause out, and so so he says, people extend that to foreknowledge, and to to, to free will, right? But Boethius says that's nonsense. It's nonsense because it doesn't take into, a f- into account time, 
right? It's one thing for me to say, hey, look, that dude is sitting, right? Yes, okay, fine. If his sitting comes first, before my opinion about his sitting, right? Then yes, his sitting caused my opinion. But if I predict his sitting with 100% certainty, if I were to have known for a fact, 100%, not 99, not 99.9, 100% certainty that he was going to sit down, then you can't say the the cause, then you can't say that his sitting is the cause of my opinion, because my opinion came first, right? I had already asserted that he was going to sit, and then he sat. Um, so again, he keeps... Uh, okay, it is necessary either that things which are going to happen be foreseen by God, or that what God foresees will in fact happen. In other words, he's saying, it doesn't matter where the cause comes in, right? In either case. So, okay... The second one is God causing it. That, uh, what God foresees will in fact happen, right? So if God's foreseeing were to cause it, obviously that eliminates free will, no question. But even if it doesn't, right? If things which are going to happen are foreseen by God, again, it's still, there is still no real freedom. In what, if I, again, if I know 100% for a fact in advance that that dude is going to sit down, he can't not sit. That's not on the table because I knew a hundred percent sure that he was going to sit down. So if my, if my opinion was knowledge, right? 100%. He didn't have a choice. He had to sit down. He might've thought he was freely choosing, but he wasn't. So either God is actually causing it or God merely foreknows it a hundred percent, in which case nothing else could possibly have happened. So, this is why the Boethius interlocutor is not convinced by that particular um, counter-argument, right? Okay. But, of course, it is preposterous to say that the outcome of temporal things is the cause of eternal foreknowledge. So, he's already saying, like, logically speaking, it doesn't even matter. But he rejects the idea that our choices in the future could cause God's foreknowledge. It's preposterous. To suppose that God foresees future events because they are going to happen, right? That is to say that our future choices cause God's knowledge, God's foreknowledge, right? Um, To suppose that God foresees future events because they are going to happen is the same as supposing that things which happened long ago are the cause of divine providence. Furthermore, just as when I know that a thing is, that thing must necessarily be, so when I know that something will happen, it is necessary that it happen. It follows then that the outcome of something known in advance must necessarily take place. The problem with divine foreknowledge is all about the four, right? It's all about the sequence. You can you can try to convince yourself that a future event can cause a past event, but that doesn't actually work, right? The sequence doesn't actually work that way. And that is the reason... Okay, so um, anyway, so we're... we're um, he's talking about the divine knowledge, right? And that is the knowledge, the reason why knowledge never deceives. Things must necessarily be as true knowledge knows them to be. If this is so, how does God foreknow future possibilities whose existence is uncertain? If he thinks that things will inevitably happen, which possibly will not happen, 
he is deceived, right? So again, this is this is the Boethius interlocutor closing another loophole, right? Maybe you might say, maybe God's foreknowledge isn't absolute. Because if that's the problem, may, maybe it's not. Maybe just God knows the odds, right? Um, so he, 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 you're free to choose, but he knows you really well, right? And so like when you know somebody really well, you can be, you can be pretty confident of like what they're going to say on a particular subject, right? Especially if they're Bilbo Baggins, um, you know, or, uh, or, or any of this other stuff, right? So, um, so this is, so, so that's fine, right? Okay. So, so he's dealing with the theory. What if it's not absolute? What if God's foreknowledge is not absolute? What if he's just, again, he's just, he knows a lot, right? So he's playing the odds. Um, how does God foreknow future possibilities whose existence is uncertain? If he thinks that things will inevitably happen, which possibly will not happen, he is deceived. But it is wrong to say that or even to think it. And if he merely knows that they may or may not happen, that is, he knows only their contingent possibilities, what is such knowledge worth, since it does not know with certainty? Such knowledge is no better than that expressed by the ridiculous prophecy of Tiresias. Whatever I say will either be or not be. Divine providence would be no better than human opinion if God judges as men do, and knows only that uncertain events are doubtful. But if nothing can be uncertain to him who is the most certain source of all things, the outcome is certain of all things which he knows with certainty shall be. Right? So basically, Boethius just says, come on, don't give me that. Right? I mean, if, if you're going to say that God's foreknowledge is uncertain, right, that he's just playing the odds, then you're, um, you're going backwards on everything. You know, like, we, we, please, we've come too far for to to play that, right? That's not even within the parameters that we're dealing with here, right? Um, it might, you know, maybe you can, th- you'd think that could make that work, but no, no, that's not exactly how it works at all, right? Okay. Um, and so he comes to his distressing conclusion, right? Therefore, there can be no freedom in human decisions and actions, since the divine mind, foreseeing everything without possibility of error, determines and forces the outcome of everything that is to happen. Once this is granted, it is clear that the structure of all human affairs must collapse. For it is pointless to assign rewards and punishment to the good and wicked, since neither are deserved if the actions of men are not free and voluntary. Punishment of the wicked and recognition of the good, which are now considered just, will seem quite unjust, since neither the good nor the wicked are governed by their own will, but are forced by the inevitability of of predetermination. Vice and virtue will be without meaning in their place, and in their place there will be utter confusion about what is deserved. Finally, and this is the most blasphemous thought of all, it follows that the author of all good must be made responsible for all human vice, since the entire order of human events depends on providence and nothing on man's intention. There is no use in hoping or praying for anything. For what is the point in hope or prayer when everything that man desires is determined by unalterable process? Thus man's only bonds with God, hope and prayer, are destroyed. So, this is a big deal. (laughs) This is a big deal. And notice how this corresponds back to the, we've come here to the end of uh, Boethius' big speech here in Book 5, right? And you'll notice that it, in a sense, sounds kind of like his speech in book one, right? In book one, he was saying, why do bad things happen to good people, right? Why in an orderly, in an otherwise orderly world does, is the, remember that you missed a spot, 
thing, right? You made this beautiful, uh, harmonious world, but human affairs are a mess, right? Why is there injustice all over the place uh, if this happens? So now, notice where he's come to is something even further away from satisfying, right? This is worse than why do bad things happen to good people? Why are some things chaotic? Instead, this is, holy cow, nothing makes any sense. There's not even any such thing as justice. The entire thing, if this is true, the entire thing is a sham from beginning to end, right? As the people who are making choices, right? You know, the whole question of like, oh, do the, you know, why do the wicked thrive and the good, uh, and the good suffer, right? Which was what he was saying back in book one. Well, now, like, goodness, we're not even ready for that question. Because the whole question is like, there's no such thing as the good or the wicked, right? They're all just doing the thing that Providence said they had to do, right? So none of them really have the, if they, if there is no freedom of will, then there is no such thing as virtue or justice or anything else. Everyone is just fulfilling the will of providence, which means that providence is willing people to do bad things, um, which doesn't really make sense, right? So he's, he's, this is, paraphrase, this is a really big deal, right? Um, if there is no such thing as the freedom of the will, that's, this is what that means, right? All of this stuff everything that the whole argument was based on is out the window. So it's a big deal. And I really like comparing book one to book five in this way, because again, he comes to sort of a, a similar kind of place, but he's he's way further forward than he was in book. It's not like he's just coming back and asking the same question again, right? He sees all the stuff that Lady Philosophy has walked him through. And yet he sees, like, here, having come to the end, at the very end... There's this one thing which, if we can't understand it, if we can't put it together, um, undoes everything. Not just everything that we've been we've been talking about, but makes it far, far worse than when we started. Um, so that's kind of a, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, Rachel asks, uh, "Does this relate uh, to the sovereignty of God?" <sighs> Not exactly. Yes and no. I mean, yes, of course, in a sense, it does. Um, Rachel, when you say the sovereignty of God, I'm guessing that you're using that phrase in something like the the like Protestant, like the Calvinist sense of the sovereignty of God. Um, uh, so does it relate to that? Yes. It does in the sense that if you're talking about Calvin's doctrine on the sovereignty of God— uh, this stuff that is, that is here is relevant to figuring out what that is and how that would work. But I don't necessarily think it's true the other way. That is, in order to understand what Boethius is saying here, we need to think about the sovereignty of God in, in Calvin's terms. Um, so they're connected, but it's not, that's not exactly what, uh, uh, what Boethius is focused on here. He's just focused on the, the simple but really profound logical conclusion of this one simple thing, right? If there is no, uh, if there is no real freedom of the will, these are the logical consequences of there being no freedom of the will. And God's foreknowledge, the absoluteness of God's foreknowledge, the doctrine of God's providence that Lady Philosophy was explaining uh, seems to undermine all of this and bring us to this really, uh, it is dark, Carita, this really dark point. Um, okay, so let's begin to look through Lady Philosophy's responses to this. First, she says, 
Let me ask why you regard as inconclusive the reasoning of those who think that foreknowledge is no hindrance to free will, because it is not the cause of the necessity of future things. She's like, hang on, let's go back to that argument that you rejected before. Right? You rejected the idea that the stuff that we did in the future could possibly cause God's knowledge in the past. Right? Um, do you have any argument for the necessity of future events other than the principle that things which are known beforehand must happen? Is, is, is it just the time sequence? Is that the only problem? If, as you have just now conceded, foreknowledge does not impose necessity on future events, why must the voluntary outcome of things be bound to predetermined results? So, if it's not true that knowing about something, being knowing 100% certain about something in the past exerts necessity upon the thing in the future, if that's not true, then what's the problem? For the sake of argument, so that you may consider what follows from it, let us suppose that there is no foreknowledge. Then would the things which are done by free will be bound by necessity in this respect? Not at all. Okay, all right. So let's, let's imagine there's no, there's no foreknowledge. If there's no foreknowledge, there's no necessity, the will can be free, no issue, right? Then, let us suppose that foreknowledge exists, but imposes no necessity on things. The same independence and absolute freedom of the will would remain. Okay, right, so the problem is to what extent that foreknowledge makes for certainty, right? Makes for uh, a necessity of the choice, the apparently free choice in the future, right? But how can it be that things which are foreseen should not happen? We do not suppose that things will not happen if providence has foreknowledge that they will. Rather, we judge that, although they will happen, they have nothing in their natures which makes it necessary that they should happen. For we see many things in the process of happening before our eyes, just as the chariot driver sees the results of his actions as he guides the chariot, and this is true in many of our activities. Do you think that such things are compelled by necessity to happen as they do? Just because you see something happening, does that mean you're causing it to happen that way? No. No, it's, it doesn't work that way, right? Again, what, what is the crux of his problem with foreknowledge? In what sense? What is, the, what is the element that causes foreknowledge to necessitate future events? The certainty and the temporal sequence, right? If you know for sure and you know it in advance, then that thing has to happen. Not really free, right? But what if, what if knowledge of something doesn't necessarily impose necessity. And she gives as an illustration seeing something happening in the present, right? You see something happening that doesn't necessarily determine that it's that it has to happen. As he admits, no, no. Um, the results of art would be vain if they were all brought about by compulsion. Then, since they came into being without necessity, these same things were not determined by necessity before they actually happened. Therefore, there are some things destined to happen in the future whose outcome is free of any necessity. For everyone, I think, would say that things which are now happening were going to happen before they actually came to pass. Thus, these things happen without necessity, even though they were known in advance. For just as knowledge of things happening now does not imply necessity in their outcomes, so foreknowledge of future things impose no necessity on their outcomes in the future. Right? Um, 
another way of saying the same thing. She's saying, like, look, you can convince yourself that philosophically speaking... So, again, let's go back to the man sitting, right? Dude comes into a room and sits down in a chair, right? If the day before you knew by some mechanism with 100% certainty that the dude was going to come down and was going to come in and sit down in that chair, right? You knew that with 100% certainty. But what if the dude didn't know it, right? You didn't tell the dude, right? So you kept your foreknowledge of the dude sitting to yourself, right? And you were sitting there and you're like, I can 100% predict, right? That that dude is going to sit down in that chair. I know it for certain. Are you causing him to sit down in the chair? You're not causing him to sit down in the chair. It doesn't impose necessity upon him. He's still coming in and being like, dude, a chair. I feel like sitting down, right? You knew it was going to happen, but it is. it doesn't actually impose necessity upon it, right? His will, his choice was free. You just knew that it was going to happen, right? So first of all, she's, so notice her first response is to be like, I think you're kind of making a little too much of this, actually, Right? It doesn't necessarily work that way. It's not as cut and dried as you're making it sound. Just because God knows for sure what you're going to choose doesn't necessarily mean that your choice isn't free. But she's not content with that. She doesn't just um, doesn't just stick with that. But you will say she anticipates the counter argument, right? But you will say the pointed issue is whether there can be any foreknowledge of things whose outcome is not necessary, right? This comes back to the end of his counter argument. Um, if he really had freedom, if when he walks into that room, there's a chance he sits down, there's a chance he doesn't sit down, right? It's a toss-up until he decides to put his butt in the chair, right? Until that moment, it's not certain. Um, then in that case, you can say theoretically, oh, I have absolute foreknowledge of what he's going to do, but it's just words, right? Um, it's not true foreknowledge if there's any percent chance that he was actually going to not sit on that chair, right? For these things seem opposed to each other. And you th- that is the doubtfulness of the event and the certainty of the foreknowledge. These two things seem opposed to each other. Um, certainty of the knowledge doubtfulness of the event. That's the things that are in opposition. Um, they seem opposed to each other, and you think that if things can be foreseen, they must necessarily happen, and that if the necessity is absent, they cannot be foreseen, and that nothing can be fully known unless it is certain. If uncertain things are foreseen as certain, that is the weakness of opinion, not the truth of knowledge. You believe that to judge that a thing is other than it is departs from the integrity of knowledge. Now, the cause of this error lies in your assumption. So here it is, right? What is the problem with his reasoning? Why does he think that there is a conflict between an uncertain action and certain foreknowledge? This is his, the flaw in his reasoning, she says. The cause of, your, of this error lies in your assumption that whatever is known is known only by the force and nature of the things which are known. But the opposite is true. Everything which is known is known according to its own, not according to its own power, but rather according to the capacity of the knower. He was arguing, ultimately, that the certainty of your foreknowledge is contingent on the certainty of the thing. If the thing is not certain, then your foreknowledge cannot be certain. And she says, the knowledge isn't about the thing, it's about the knower, and how the knower knows the thing. Not about the thing itself. 
It's not a, 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 a product. It's not an element contained intrinsically in the thing. How a thing can be known, the degree of certainty with which a thing can be known, that's, that's a story about the knower, not a story about the known, about the object. Right? Okay. Um, so let's keep going. Forms of knowing. This is super important right here. This is so influential for the whole Middle Ages. Let me illustrate with a brief example. The roundness of a body is known in one way by the sense of touch and in another by the sight. The sight, remaining at a distance, takes in the whole body at once by its reflected rays. But the touch makes direct contact with the sphere and comprehends it piecemeal by moving around its surface. Okay, so if, if, you, have a, if you have a ball, right, your eyes can tell you at once, hey, look, it's a sphere. Because your eyes are taking in the entire sphere. At least, you know, you kind of turn it around, right? But it's, it, you're, you're able to see the whole thing. Whereas you don't know, right? If you just reach out and touch it, right? You imagine a big ball, right? And you're reaching out and touching it. You've got to feel all the way around before you can be sure, oh, okay, it's a ball, right? It could have just been like a, a half sphere on a flat surface or something. But no, 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 it, it, it's a sphere, right? <clears throat> you can tell that at a glance by sight. Look, it's a, it's a ball. You can't tell that at a glance. You can't tell that at a single touch with your touch. So by your sense of touch, you can know it in one way. <clears throat> by your sense of sight, you can know it in a different way. You can come to the same conclusion about the same object, but you're coming at it in two different ways based on two different means of knowing about that thing. Right? Okay. <clears throat> Clear enough. A man himself is comprehended in different ways. By, now, these are super important categories. She, she defines four different categories of knowing here. A man is comprehended in different ways by the senses, imagination, reason, and intelligence. This is a less useful one. I'm counting on my fingers that are in a cast here. Um, by the senses, imagination, reason, and intelligence. The senses grasp the figure of the thing as it is constituted in matter. The imagination, however, grasps the figure alone without the matter. Okay, so four ways of knowing things. Uh, one is through your senses. Your senses put you in contact in one way or another. It puts you in contact with physical matter, right? You're either touching the matter, you're smelling the matter, you're hearing the matter, you're seeing the matter, right? Um, that's how the senses work. And sense, uh, uh, sensation is one way to know something, right? Imagination is another way to know something. So when it says imagination grasps the figure alone without the matter, that means you can picture something in your head. Imagination literally means the forming of images in your brain, right? So you can close your eyes and you can picture. A per so, you know, I can know about, you know, uh, uh, my sister, right? I can know about my sister when I see her right there, right? I can see her and hear her and uh, smell her under certain circumstances, right? If she's sitting right there, I can perceive her with my senses. Um, but right now, I don't perceive her with my senses. My sister is several miles away and there are many intervening physical obstacles. I have no sensation of my sister right now, but I can close my eyes and I can picture my sister, right? That is me perceiving her, knowing her with my imagination, not with my senses. Notice the connection, right? What is the image in my head built out of? Sense perceptions, 
right? If I had never seen my sister, I would not be able to hold an accurate image of her in my brain, right? But I have, so I can, right? Okay, so the senses grasp the figure of the thing as it is constituted in matter. The imagination grasps the figure alone without the matter. Reason, on the other hand, goes beyond this and investigates by universal consideration the species itself, which is in particular things, right? That is, if I start saying things like, my sister is a woman, right? If I start thinking of, like, the categories in which she is, start, start, uh, th- that's what reason does, right? Reason adds together facts and generalizes from them. Your imagination by itself can't do that. The, 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 the facts, the bits that you put together through reason come from your imagination, right? But then you put them together with your reason, and it's your reason that draws more sort of general conclusions, Right? about things. So I can, I can draw some conclusions about my sister, most of them flattering, um, based on my reason, right? When I imagine, uh, like, different facts about my sister and different things that she has said and done, right? I can draw some conclusions about my sister using my reason. The vision of intelligence is higher yet, and it goes beyond the bounds of the universe and sees with the clear eye of the mind the pure form itself. Ratio, reason. Intellectus is the thing above that, that he's describing, right? So you've got sense, imagination, reason, and intellectus. Intelligence, intellectus, is higher yet. It goes beyond the bounds of the universe and sees with the clear eye of the mind the pure form itself. Okay, so it's this form of knowing that is beyond reason. All right, more on this. Uh, we'll, co- we'll come back to that and what that means here. In all this, we chiefly observe that the higher power of knowing includes the lower, but the lower can in no ways rise to the higher. Now, see how that was implicit in what I was just describing, right? I can't imagine my sister without having seen her, right? Without having perceived her in some sense so w- with my senses, right? However, the lower can in no ways rise to the higher. If I didn't have imagination... Right? If all, if all I had was sense perception, then if my sister was not currently in my field of, sense, of, of sensing, right? If she was not in the room with me, I would not know that she existed. I can only know that she exists when she's not here with me because I can remember her, right? I can, I can form an image of her in my brain, right? I have imagination. If I didn't have imagination, that would be wholly inaccessible to me. Only the stuff right in front of me. Um, we've all seen babies do this right? Uh, Babies, before they have object permanence, are really kind of funny this way, right? There's a thing right in front of them, and you cover it up, and they're like, there's no thing, right? I am am perceiving no thing right now, so the thing no longer exists. That's that's what it's like to have sense, but no imagination yet, right? Uh, The faculty of imagination is still developing, uh, uh, Boethius would have said. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Jennifer Pope asks, do these various ways of knowing relate to the various kinds of souls, vegetable, mineral, animal souls? Jennifer, they absolutely do. Absolutely, yes. Um, uh, Not like one-to-one necessarily. Unlike, you know, plants and minerals don't really have sense even at all. Like We don't really know that they exactly sense things. 
and there are some kinds of animals, as, as she's going to go on and argue, which don't necessarily have imagination either. Um, but, uh, but generally, uh, uh, yeah, like the rational soul for humans and the, uh, the, the, the sensible soul, that's pretty clear that animals have imagination too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Uh, David says, when uh, Boethius talks about the species itself, is he talking about platonic forms? No. Reason does not have access to the platonic forms. Um, intellectus does. Intellectus can perceive the ultimate essence of things. Reason can't. Reason can point to it, right? Reason can kind of get at it, but they can't. it, it can't perceive it, right? Um, with the reason alone, you cannot perceive forms. You can conclude that forms must exist, but you can't perceive them. Um, okay. Sorry, where was I? Uh, okay, right. Can in no way rise to the higher. For the senses achieve nothing beyond the material. The imagination cannot grasp universal, universal species. That is, you know, so, again, you can, you can see, and you can imagine, uh, I, I can see and I can imagine my sister, but I cannot imagine sisters, right? Or, like, sisterhood, Sisterness, right? The the abstract concept of what it means to be a sibling. I can't imagine that. I can reason about it based upon my imaginations, but my imagine my imagination alone could not get to what it means to be a sibling uh, any more than my sense alone could retain a concept of my sister when she's not in the room, right? Okay. Uh, reason cannot know simple forms. But the intelligence, as though looking down from on high, conceives the underlying forms and distinguishes among them all, but in the same way in which it comprehends the form itself, which cannot be known to any other power. The intelligence knows the objects of the lower kinds of knowledge, the universals of the reason, the figures of the imagination, the matter of the senses, but not by using reason or imagination or senses. With a single glance of the mind, it formally, as it were, sees all things. So again, the higher include the lesser, the lesser cannot rise to the higher. If you have reason, you have imagination and sense as well, right? And you are utilizing all those things, right? You are utilizing images which are constructed out of um, of perceptions, right? You can even do other things. Like if you've got reason, you can do other things, right? Like for instance, you can imagine something that you've never seen before, because you've seen a lot of things and you can extrapolate from those things that you've seen and imagine something else, like a green sun, for instance, right? Or a, or a, green, or a, a green great dragon, maybe. Uh, you can imagine these things, right? You can undertake fantasy. Uh, and I'm spelling it with P-H in case you can't hear it. Uh, uh, you can undertake fantasy, which is forming an image of something you've never seen before. It's a separate psychological capacity from imagination, though directly related to it, right? But again, that comes from reason. If you didn't have reason, you couldn't do that. Um, fantasy, in the medieval sense, imagination, uh, in the modern, the way that we use that word in the modern uh, world, which is different from imagination, it's, it's being described here, um, that's, that's a rational thing. It's, it's, it, 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 it needs reason. This is reason applying these other things, right? Again, the higher including all of the lower. Intellectus, which is above reason, perceives all things, right? Um, do you see, then, how all these use their own power in knowing 
rather than the powers of the objects which are known. So back to the point she was making before, right? The certainty with which you know a thing has nothing to do with the certainty of the thing. It has to do with the power of the knowing, right? The capacity of the knower. And this is proper. For since all judgment is in the act of the one judging, it is necessary that everyone should accomplish his own action by his own power, and not by the power of something other than himself. Right? So, okay. Let's go back to the man sitting. Right? Um, if, uh, if you have only sense and no imagination, right? If, if you're just on the lower, lowest level of knowledge, you can see the, the, the dude sit. Right? The dude is sitting. You are watching it. Right? Um, so you know that he's sitting because you can see it. Right? If I tell you, as I am doing right now, I'm talking about this dude sitting, right? You've all been imagining a dude coming into a room and sitting down, right? You're using your imagination, and so you can, you can, you can know it in that way, right? You can, you can interact with that concept. You can know it through your imagination, right? Um, you can apply reason to it. I'm not sure exactly how I would apply reason to a dude sitting, but you can apply reason to it, right? Or if you have intellectus. Right? If you have that highest form of knowledge, which is above reason, then you can know it with a different degree of certainty. Right? So you can see where she's going here. God has intellectus. We have reason. Um, God's knowledge goes past ours. Now, you might ask, how do we know that? Right? Where is she getting this concept of intellectus from? If, all we, if, if the lower can't rise to the higher, how can we even guess what intellectus is like? Well, we can kind of reason it out, right? We can reason that there must be something higher than reason. Why must there be something higher than reason? I'll come back to that. We'll, we'll come back to that. It's connected with what she's going to go to next. Um, why intellectus is sort of a, a, a rational necessity, basically. Um, okay, Brandy, I guess I could uh, reason as to what caused the person to sit. Right. Yeah, I guess so, Brandon, if you if you come in, you're like, well, you know, people are creatures of habit and he always sits in that chair for this. You know, this is this is his English class. Right. And he always sits in that chair for his English class. And he's the kind of person who always likes to sit in the same seat every day. Uh, so I, I, I can understand why he's sitting in the chair. There we go, Brandon. We're applying our reason to uh, uh, to the dude sitting. Right. Um, in the divine intellectus, he has known that that dude was going to sit in that chair from before the foundations of the world, right? That's the intellectus version uh, of this. Um, <laughs> James says he's been imagining a dude sitting with the signum halo behind him. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, all right. According to this principle, another illustration of the levels of knowing here. According to this principle, various and different substances have different ways of knowing. Again, different things have different powers of knowing. There are certain immobile living things which are without any means of knowing other than by sense impressions. Shellfish and other forms of marine life which are nourished as they stick to rocks are creatures of this kind. Okay, so a barnacle, right? Barnacles have sense, but they don't have imagination. You can tell because they don't go anywhere, right? If a barnacle had more imagination, right? And there's a barnacle, it's sitting there, right? It's, it's waiting for like what? It's like waiting for plankton to come, right? 
And so a plankton comes to a barnacle and it's like, ah, the plankton. We love plankton, right? This plankton is wonderful. And then there's no plankton. It's like there's no plankton. There is no plankton. If the, if the, the plankton had imagination, right, it would be like, ooh, I remember plankton, right? And it would be great. I'm going to go find some plankton. You know, because that's what I want, right? I don't have any right now, and I wish I had some, so I'm going to go find some, right? But it's a barnacle, so it can't do that. That's why it just sits there, and it's like, nothing, nothing, nothing. Plankton, right? Because it just has sense. It doesn't have imagination. Beasts which have the power of motion, on the other hand, have the impulse to seek and avoid certain things, and they have imagination, right? So your dog can imagine things. This is obvious, right? You say to your dog, you want to go for a walk, right? And the sound of the word walk conjures images in their canine heads, right? And they know exactly what that is, and they know that they want it, right? So they go running over, and they go to find their leash, right? Because they know that that's associated with it. Um, so that is imagination, the power to hold the image in your head, which is necessary for desire, right? You can't want anything. Um, do all motile animals have imagination? Yes. Yes. Um, Aristotle says that motion and desire are intimately connected, right? Uh, so if a thing moves, it's got, it's, it has desire. If you have desire, desire is, is desire and imagination. Imagination is a prereq for desire. Absolutely. Um, if you can't hold the image in your head, how can you have a thing? How, how can you want a thing? All you can do is just either perceive it or not perceive it, right? So, um, so yes, yes, all motile beasts um, have imagination. But that doesn't mean it has reason, right? It can have imagination, but not reason. Reason is characteristic of the human race alone, just as pure intelligence belongs to God alone, right? Okay. Alone among beasts, angels have reason too, Um uh, but uh, they don't have bodies, right? Uh, but anyway, they're also rational creatures like we are. Um, but reason is the characteristic of the human race alone, just as pure intelligence belongs to God alone. So barnacles, dogs, humans, God, right? Uh, correspond or being illustrative of the four different levels of knowledge, um, four different ways of knowing. <clears throat> um, Yeah, yeah. Um, good. It follows, then, that the most excellent knowledge is that which by its own nature knows not only its own proper object, but also the objects of all lower kinds of knowledge. What, then, should we think if the senses and imagination were to oppose reason by arguing that the universal, which reason claims to know, is nothing? Right? If you could have a conversation with your dog, right, and you tried to convince your dog, let's imagine that you were trying to convince your dog that, um, well, really of almost anything, right? Uh, try to convince your dog that, like, eating that entire cake really is not a good idea, right? Um, your dog is not going to be convinced, right? You, can, you could go on, even if your dog could comprehend your language, right? You could go on all you liked about um, 
you know, health concerns and whether or not it's going to make you sick to your stomach and, you know, which part of the house you're going to end up barfing all over later on in the night, your dog is not going to listen, right? Um, because it doesn't understand, it does, if it doesn't have reason, it's not going to be able to, to understand these abstract ideas, right? These abstract ideas that you put together from a, all it has is imagination, right? There's a cake right there, man. And it is imagining how that cake is going to taste. It wants the cake, right? And it doesn't care what the consequences are going to be because that that's a reason thing, right? So uh, it uh, something with sense and imagination only, if you try to show it universals, right? If you try to, to demonstrate the results of reason, it's just not even going to get it, right? Um, and I, I don't know about you, but I know I've seen that look, uh, um, that look in my dog's eyes, right? You know, there's like food on the floor that it shouldn't eat, Right. And it wants to eat it. And you're, you know, you, if you were to try to just explain, no, let me explain to you why, you know, the adverse health benefits of, uh, you know, the, the adverse, uh, uh, health effects, right. Of, of eating this thing. Right. It's just looking at you with that solid look like, but I want it, but I want it, but I want it, but I want it. Right. And it's, even if it could understand your language, it would be completely over its head because it doesn't have reason. The thing, the conclusions of reason are inaccessible, just as the conclusions of imagination are inaccessible if you only have sense, right? You know, if, if I only had sense and, and you told me something about my sister, I'd be like, what sister? I don't see a sister, right? How could I possibly retain it if I didn't have imagination? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Um, this is me not getting drawn into discussions about whether or not animals have reason or any, some species of animals might have reason and not others. I'm not going there because it's totally beside the point. Uh, if apes and elephants had reason, if dogs actually did turn out to have reason, it wouldn't change anything about the principles that she's talking about here. It would just, it would just change the question of which categories, what things fall into. Right. But, but, uh, categorizing animals is not what we're here to do. Lady philosophy instead just wants us to understand about the different causes of reason. Right. Uh, so that, uh, even if dogs were fully rational, caterpillars probably still wouldn't be right. And the whole point is the whole point about the animals is to help you try to imagine, uh, what, uh, you know, to, to conceive of what these different, uh, levels of knowing, uh, are. But again, most importantly to the things below, the thing above is incomprehensible In, it's impossible to conceive of. That's the important principle. Again, it, assuming your dog is irrational, your dog is not going to understand a rational conclusion. And it doesn't matter how you try to explain it. It doesn't matter how you say it. Um, it's just, they're not going to, they're just going to be sitting there saying, but I want it, but I want it, but I want it, but I want it. Right. Being driven by their imagination. Okay. All right. Uh, good effort though. Good effort people. Um, (laughs) Sharon asks, is there a progression through these phases by children? 
Boethius doesn't talk about this, of course. Uh, I don't even remember any medieval thinkers really talking this way, but it really kind of seems like it. Or I don't think they ever get to intellectus. Maybe when they're teenagers. Uh, but, um, but, but yeah, you certainly can see, you know, like, you know, we talked about a child in the sense, you know, a baby in the sense only without imagination stage, uh, you know, and that, but then children seem to stay in that uh, imagination only without reason stage for quite some time. Um, some of them never really get out of it, <laughs> to be perfectly frank. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's see, where were we? Did we finish? I think we finished. Oh, no, we didn't. Okay, and suppose further, that reason should answer that it conceives sensible and imaginable objects under the aspect of universality, but that the senses and imagination cannot aspire to the knowledge of universality because their knowledge cannot go beyond corporeal figures. So again, if, if again, a rational thing is arguing with either with things that just have sense and things that just have imagination, they're not even, they're not really going to be able to the rational thing is not going to be able to explain universals, nor is it even going to be able to explain how it knows and puts together sensory images and ima- and images, right? Because it's doing it, it's, it's relating to them in a different way than those without reason are. Moreover, reason might continue, in matters of knowledge, we ought to trust the stronger and more perfect judgment. So yeah, you kind of want to say to your dog, D- just trust me, man. You might want to say to your children, trust me, right? I, 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 I really, uh, I'm applying reason here. You're really not applying reason here. You're just applying imagination. You're just sitting there saying, but I want it, but I want it, but I want it. Trust me. So reason is really actually better. Um, it's a stronger and more perfect judgment than mere imagination. In such a controversy, we who possess the power of reason, as well as of imagination and sense perception, ought to take the side of reason. Okay, so we should see, yeah, okay, if reason is arguing with those below it, then we should take reason's side, even though we're not going to be able to convince them, right? And even though they are completely incapable of perceiving, of really getting the conclusions that we're coming to. See the application, right? If God is above us, and his way of knowing is intellectus, which is fundamentally different from reason— we're not going to be able to know the things that he knows. It's not going to make If we're trying to apply our reason to the situation, we're going to be like the dog, just staring at God and saying, but I want it, but I want it, but I want it, right? Our reason will be to his intellectus, just what our dog's imagination is to our reason, right? Okay. The same, the situation is much the same when human reason supposes that the divine intelligence behind future events, uh, sorry, supposes that the divine intelligence beholds future events only as reason herself sees them. So again, what was Boethius' problem? It's not, it doesn't make sense that you could have certain foreknowledge of an event which is not certain. That can't happen. What does Lady Philosophy say? I get that that doesn't make sense to you. I get it. Why does it not make sense? You're you're thinking rationally, right? That's a good thing, right? I'm not saying your argument doesn't make sense. It does. But you're only using reason here, right? Um, And what's more, you're trying to model the divine knowledge after your knowledge. You're going into this whole discussion with the assumption 
that God only has reason. And that, she suggests, is a flaw. For you argue that if some things seem not to have certain and necessary outcomes, they cannot be foreknown as certainly as certainly about to happen. Right? Again, that's the whole, like, can't have certain knowledge about uncertain things. Therefore, you say that there can be no foreknowledge of these things, or if we believe that there is such foreknowledge, that the outcome of all things is controlled by necessity. Again, this whole, the whole problem with foreknowledge and free will, one element of this whole problem here is that you're simply assuming that everything involved, that the, that form of knowledge, the foreknowledge of God, is a rational foreknowledge. If this, then that. I draw this conclusion from the evidence that I have. Is that what God is doing? Is that what providence is about? Making observations and drawing conclusions from them? That's how reason works, right? Is that what God's doing in his providential foreknowledge? No. That's not how it works for God. He's not making observations and drawing conclusions. But if we, who are endowed with reason, could possess the intelligence, the intellectus, of the divine mind, we would judge that just as the senses and imaginations should accede to reason, so human reason ought justly to submit itself to the divine mind. Let us rise, if we can, to the summit of the highest intelligence, for there reason will see that in itse- what in itself it cannot see, that a certain and, dev- and definite foreknowledge can behold even those things which have no certain outcome. And this foreknowledge is not mere conjecture, but the unrestricted simplicity of supreme knowledge. If we consider these things from the point of view of intellectus, not from reason, right? Um, Then we can see a certain indefinite foreknowledge can behold things which have no certain outcome. It's only a problem from the point of view of reason. Okay. How does that work, Lady Philosophy? Since, as we have shown, whatever is known is known according to the nature of the knower, and not according to its own nature, let us now consider, as far as is lawful, the nature of the divine being. Right? Okay. So let's think about intellectus. So this intellectus concept has been posed as like a theory so far. Right? Let's work out that theory. What would it be like if God's knowledge is to our knowledge as our knowledge is to animals' knowledge? Right? Um, if God's knowledge is different from reason, we still need to kind of answer the question, well, why should it be? Right? What should make us think that it's different from reason in the same way that reason is different from imagination, or like proportionally to how reason is different from imagination? Why should we even think that? And it, but, but then if we do think that, what's it like then? Right? Okay, so in order to figure that out, we need to consider the nature of God, the nature of the divine being, so that we may discover what its knowledge is. Only if we know about, like, what God's nature is can we understand the nature of his knowledge. The common judgment of all rational creatures holds that God is eternal. Therefore, let us consider what eternity is, for this will reveal both the divine nature and the divine knowledge. Okay, so she roots the concept of intellectus in the idea of God's being eternal. And again, this is something that uh, uh, that Aristotle and Plato agree on, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yes, Brandon says, one reason we have such trouble with this concept of something above reason is that modern ways of thinking have enshrined reason as the highest form of knowledge. Yes, absolutely. Um, the idea that there could be a form of knowledge which is, uh, uh, which is superior to reason. Again, uh, it's like hierarchically superior, like reason is superior over imagination. That's just off the radar screen. Um, Lady Philosophy again says, okay, given, you know, what, what, you know, the, the philosophers has, have said about God, let us think, what, what, what would his form of knowledge be like? And the conclusion that she's going to come to, of course, is that knowledge would not be reason. It would be above reason. Um, and yes, I agree, Brandon, if, if you're talking to somebody and that person does not accept, even theoretically, the possibility that there could be a way of knowing superior to reason, it's going to be hard to talk about any of this stuff, in fact. Um, now, David Adley asks, is the definition of eternity here one of the things that Boethius just takes as a, as a given? No! Glad you asked that, David. Great question. Let's talk about eternity. Eternity is the whole perfect, and simultaneous possession of endless life. I'll do that again. The whole perfect and simultaneous possession of endless life. The meaning of this can be made clearer by comparison with temporal things. For whatever lies in time lives in the present, proceeding from past to future, and nothing is so constituted in time that it can embrace the whole span of its life at once. It has not yet arrived at tomorrow, and it has already lost yesterday. Even the life of this day is lived only in each moving, passing moment. Therefore, whatever is subject to the condition of time, even that which, as Aristotle conceived the world to be, has no beginning and will have no end in a life coextensive with the infinity of time, is such that it cannot be rightly thought eternal. For it does not comprehend and include the whole of infinite life all at once, since it does not embrace the future which is yet to come. Therefore, only that which comprehends and possesses the whole plenitude of endless life together, from which no future thing nor any past thing is absent, can justly be called eternal. Moreover, it is necessary that such a being be in full possession of itself, always present to itself, and hold the infinity of moving time present before itself. All right, okay, okay, okay. First, let's talk about time and temporal things, right? And we can see what Lady Philosophy is getting at, right, about the limitation of temporal life. The fact is, you know, we might say something like, you know, I might live for 80 years. That's not true, right? Uh, it's not true at all. We can't say that I have 80 years, I mean, I can say I... Well, how old am I? I always have to do math. What year is it? I forget. I'm 40... My birthday isn't yet. 42! I'm 42. Okay. I'm 42. <laughs> I, seriously, I always literally have to do math in my head when I figure out how old I am. I'm 42. Okay, I'm 42. So we can say, I've had 42 years. No, I haven't. I've never been in possession of 42 years. I am not now in possession of 42 years. What am I in possession of? What do I really have? When it comes to my life, what do I really have? Right now, this... Mo oh, shoot, I lost it. I can't get that moment. That moment when I said this moment is already gone. Forever, right? 
all I have is this. Shoot, it happened again, right? We are only, we're living second by second, fraction of a second by fraction of a second. We have no access to the past other than through memory. We have no, we have no access to the future other than through imagination, right? Through fantasy. We can create images in our brain of what the past was like. We can create images in our brain of what the future might be like, but we have no access to either one of those things. So I don't have 42 years. I'm not going to ever have 80 years. It doesn't matter how long I live. There might be that much of a gap between my birth and my death, but all I ever have access to is this moment, which we call the present. And the more you think about it and subdivide it, this moment called the present is infinitesimally small. Right? It's this continually fleeting existence. The important distinction that Lady Philosophy is making here in defining eternity is she's saying don't confuse eternity with perpetuity. If you imagine something merely going on and on and on in time forever and not stopping, that's not qualitatively, it's quantitatively different than a life which has an, a beginning, a discrete beginning and an end. So if you say this person, like God has always been since the beginning of time and God will be until the end of time, right? That's still not eternity. That's perpetuity. But if you are within time, if you are temporal, all you ever have access, doesn't matter how many years you're going to be around, how many millions of years you're going to be around, you only have access to that fraction of the second that is called now, right? Um, a whole series of them, right? But only a little bit at once. <laughs> Tom Hillman is asking how I can forget the number 42. Uh, yeah, yeah. Brandon is teasing me about that too. What is Corey's age is the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Yeah, pretty much. Turns out. Yeah, yeah. Didn't really uh, didn't really realize that. But of course, that's, that's totally true. Um Exactly. So, yes, James Stevens, very good. Sequency versus simultaneity. Absolutely, yes. This is exactly the kind of temporal paradox that uh, that we were talking about all the time uh, in The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. Yes, to go back to our, what, two books ago in the Mythgard Academy. Exactly. Um, only th- simultaneity is true. So, so obviously... If you have some, if you have one being which is restricted to the temporal sequence, right, which only ever has access to this tiny fraction of its being that is in the now, right, this constantly moving thing that we call the present, that person does not have the same kind of being that somebody who is outside of time entirely, who has simultaneous possession of endless life. Not just endless in time, but simultaneous possession. Not sequential possession. Simultaneous possession of endless life. Whole, perfect, simultaneous possession. In order for God... To say that God is eternal means that God is outside of time entirely. Time is something created by God and to which he is not subject. So in eternity, God... uh, possesses the entirety of his being, the whole plenitude of endless life together. It comprehends and possesses the whole plenitude of endless life together. That is the definition of eternity. Okay. Um, by the way, you can already see 
where the concept of intellectus comes from, right? How does reason work? Ne- necessarily, in all cases. Reason, reason is a process. It's always a process. Sometimes it can be a quick process, right? Uh, you know, if you're really smart and you're, and you're good at reasoning, you can reason quickly. But you're still doing a process fast, right? Just like your computer might compute things fast, but it's still computing things in a measurable way right? In time. Reason is a process. Add up a series of observations and premises, and you come to a conclusion. And even if reason is really good, and it has really good data to work with, and it's working with it flawlessly, it's still a process. You have to build it. In other words, something which is outside of time cannot possibly merely have reason. Because they contain everything simultaneously. They possess everything simultaneously. They're not restricted to time. Only temporal creatures can be restricted to reason. Um, something which is atemporal, by definition, by the definition of reason, could not just reason. So this idea of intellectus, of this simultaneous, perfect grasping of things, without reasoning, uh, a reasoning process, without the steps and stages of logic. That's what intellectus is. And it's, again, it's, it's the logical consequence of the doctrine of the eternity of God, God being outside of time. Okay. Um, all right, let's keep going. More on God's knowledge. Since then, every judgment comprehends the subjects presented to it according to its own nature, right? Remember, you know according to your kind of knowledge, not according to the thing, right? And since God lives in the eternal present, his knowledge transcends all movement of time and abides in the simplicity of its immediate present. His knowledge transcends all movement of time and abides... Back to simplicity, right? That providential idea, the idea of the simplicity of the knowledge of God, because he himself is simple in the sense of comprehending everything at once, right? Of possessing everything at once, not being spread out, uh, being chopped up and spread out over time. It's compass, it, com- it encompasses the infinite sweep of past and future and regards all things in its simple comprehension as if they were now taking place. Um, this is what C.S. Lewis calls the eternal now, right? Um, every time is now to God, right? Because God looks equally upon... Again, it's like imagining a person looking down at a two-dimensional timeline on a sheet of paper, right? That person can look down and they can perceive different, perceive different dates on the timeline at the same time, right? They can consider each one of them at any time. They're not restricted to the timeline of the, of the, that, that's drawn on the paper in any way. Right, so too does can God relate to any point in the temporal sequence simultaneously. It's really hard to talk about this stuff without using time words to describe God. Right, you can't say at the same time, right, because that implies that God is in time. Um, but uh, uh, so it's hard to talk about. But you see the time, and yes, Brandon, this is why Aslan calls all time calls calls all times soon. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, again, Lewis is, Lewis is all over this. Um, okay. Thus, if you will think about the foreknowledge by which God distinguishes all things, you will rightly consider it to be not a foreknowledge of future events, 
but a knowledge of an ever-changing present. For this reason, divine foreknowledge is called providence rather than prevision, because it resides above all inferior things and looks out on all things from their summit. In other words, Lady Philosophy has given a very Lady Philosophy answer to this question, right? Remember what was her answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't, right? Why do uh, the, uh, the evil flourish and the good suffer? They don't, right? Uh, why does, how could, uh, doesn't God's foreknowledge cause you know, eliminate the freedom of the will? No, God doesn't have foreknowledge. He just has knowledge. There's no for about it. Remember, as I was, as we were looking at Boethius's argument, the temporal sequence was what he was really harping on, right? It's yeah, no, it's not the same thing. You might say, remember when he was doing the counter argument, you might say that seeing somebody choose something doesn't cause them to choose it, right? So you see the dude sitting in the chair. Your opinion is true that he's sitting in the chair. He's sitting in the chair. There's the cause goes in one only one direction though, right? You're seeing him sitting in the chair didn't cause him to sit in the chair. God only ever sees people sit in chairs. <laughs> Right. <laughs> He's always seeing. Uh, so t- so when we say like, oh, but if I knew the day before that he would absolutely sit in that chair, then that would mean there was no chance that he wouldn't sit in it. But that puts God in the past and God's knowledge in the past. God's knowledge is in the past. The providential plan is not a historical event. It's in that eternal present. It comprehends all of these things simultaneously. Okay. We're getting there. Creator, we're closer than it looks. We totally are. Creator's thinking it's 1130 and we still have 10 more slides. Yeah, but like a bunch of them are, will go will go fast. Remember I said we were going to do some fun with the Anglo-Saxon Boethius at the end? That's like five slides. So we're, so we're totally almost done. Um, okay. Then Lady Philosophy went on, If we may aptly compare God's present vision with man's, he sees all things in his eternal present as you see some things in your temporal present. Therefore, this divine foreknowledge does not change the nature and properties of things. It simply sees things present before, as it will later turn out to be in what we regard as the future. His judgment is not confused. With a single intuition of his mind, he knows all things that are to come whether necessarily or not. Can God have certain knowledge of a thing which is uncertain? Yeah, of course he can. Right? Because again, we think about cause and effect as being rooted in time. You can't have certain foreknowledge of a thing that hasn't happened yet and it still be free. Well, yeah, you can if the foreknowledge isn't prior in time, in fact. Just as when you happen to see simultaneously a man walking on the street and the sun shining in the sky, even though you see both at once, you can distinguish between them and realize that one action is voluntary, the other necessary. So the sun is shining in the sky because that's what it does, right? It has to do that. Uh, It's its nature to do that. The man is walking down the street because he chose to do it. The one is certain, the other is not certain, right? The one is an act of free choice, the other one is just part of the system. Right, And you can distinguish. You can perceive both of those things, and you can distinguish the difference between them. God's providential plan does the same thing. There are some things that happen that are programmed, like the rising and setting of the sun. Right, Those are pre-programmed. 
and there's no free will involved. The sun is not choosing to rise and set. Um, he also sees things that people are choosing to do freely. Person walking down the seat, dude sitting in chair, right? And God is seeing those things and not imposing necessity upon them when they're happening. So the divine mind, looking down on all things, does not disturb the nature of the things which are present before it, but our future with respect to time. That is, from our point of view, right? Therefore, when God knows something that will happen in the future, and at the same time knows that it will not happen through necessity, this is not opinion, but knowledge based on truth. Can God have absolute foreknowledge, what we would call foreknowledge, of an uncertain thing? Yeah, of course. Because he's not in time, right? That is the key. Um, okay. There is no doubt, then, that all things will happen which God knows will happen, but some of them happen as a result of free will. And although they happen, they do not, by their existence, lose their proper natures, by which, before they happened, they were not, uh, they were able not to happen. But, you may ask... What does it mean to say that these events are not necessary, since by reason of the condition of divine knowledge, they happen just as if they were necessary? Again, like, so again, she's coming back to his counter-argument, right? You were worried that, like, if God knew about it, that it means it absolutely has to happen, because he was absolutely sure it was going to happen. The meaning is the same as in the example I used a while ago of the sun rising and the man walking. At the time they are happening, they must be, they must necessarily be happening. But the sun's rising is governed by necessity even before it happens, while the man's walking is not. One is a is a is a, a certain one is a certain event, one is an uncertain event. One is a, a a predestined event, the other is not a is a free choice by the person. But God's knowledge of both is the same. Because God is the same, right? And God's interaction with time is the same in both cases. Similarly, all the things God sees as present will undoubtedly come to pass, but some will happen by the necessity of their natures, other by the powers of those who make them happen. Therefore, we quite properly said that these things are necessary if viewed from the standpoint of divine knowledge, but if they are considered in themselves, they are free of the bonds of necessity. In other words, if you ask God, right, hey God, what's going to happen tomorrow? Right? He knows and can tell you. He's not in any doubt. He's not playing the odds, right? He can just look over and be like, oh yeah, I see what's happening tomorrow, <laughs> right? From his point of view, everything is necessary. I, he's seeing it happen. It's, it's a thing, right? But from our point of view, as we go through them, the choices that we make tomorrow are real choices, uh, and we really have the freedom to make them. But you may say, if I can change my mind about doing something, I can frustrate providence, since by chance I may change something which providence foresaw. <laughs> and she's trying to she's trying to anticipate counter-arguments, right? What if at the last second I decided just to do a totally different thing than I was planning to do, right? That would catch foreknowledge on the hop, right? That would, that would catch providence on the hop. 
My answer is this. You can indeed alter what you propose to do, but because the present truth of providence sees that you can, and whether or not you will, you cannot frustrate the divine knowledge any more than you can escape the eye of someone who is present and watching you, even though you may, by your free will, vary your actions. Yeah, of course. Again, because it's not about God predicting, because God isn't in time. So you're not thwarting God's prediction. Uh, you're, you're just, it's, he's just able to see you do what you do. And so whatever it is you do, no matter how wacky and unexpected, uh, you may think is the thing that you're going to do. You're never going to surprise God because again, he's not predicting, he's observing, right? That is his relationship, uh, with time. Um, exactly. Um, since this is true. Here's her final conclusion. Last paragraph of the book. Since this is true, the freedom of the human will remains inviolate, and laws are just, since they provide rewards and punishments to human wills, which are not controlled by necessity. God looks down from above, knowing all things, and the eternal present, and the eternal present of his vision concurs with the future character of our actions, distributing rewards to the good and punishments to the evil. Our hopes and prayers are not directed to God in vain, for if they are just, they cannot fail. Therefore, stand firm against vice and cultivate virtue. Your choices matter. Right? Lift up your soul to worthy hopes and offer humble prayers to heaven. If you will face it, the necessity of virtuous action imposed upon you is very great. I love the use of necessity here. It's almost like a pun. She's making a joke, right? There is a necessity upon you, not a logical necessity, like we've been talking about, right? There is an urgency. There is a need. It's important, right, uh, for you to do virtuous action. It becomes like it's a moral necessity, right? Is very great since all your actions are done in the sight of a judge who sees all things. So far from the divine knowledge meaning that nothing matters and everything is pointless and you doesn't matter what you do because everything is pre-scripted. It's the other way around, right? God does not foreknow and therefore has pre-programmed your entire life. Instead, God sees all things at all time, which makes it even more important for you to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Um, by the way, one of the things that we can see in this insistence on free will and in Lady Philosophy's response to the that uh, dark and disturbing conclusion that Bo- the Boethius character was drawing before, um, several of you were asking this whole the doctrine that uh, you know this this teaching that she which is what doctrine means of course by the way uh, that um, all human beings are drawn to God right that everything is going back to its home you know wants to go back to its home where it came from um, does this imply that everyone will be saved right that ultimately um uh everyone will be redeemed sooner or later not necessarily um i don't think that boethius is arguing that um and the primary reason i don't think is 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 it's the free will stuff right the will is free remember that chain the chains of the wind the, the 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 poem that um we were looking at with uh, uh in tom's bit early at the beginning of class right um and remember what Lady Philosophy said about the freedom of the will at the very beginning, right? You can talk about the freedom of the will. Some wills are freer than others, right? And the wills that are less free than others are the ones that the, the ones that are least free are the ones that have chained themselves, which through a consequence of their own free choices, right? By choosing wickedness instead of goodness, by um, by turning away 
from the good, ceasing to see, to to seek the ultimate good, and instead turning down these false paths uh, towards worldly good, chaining themselves into blindness and darkness uh, because of the desire for you know the golden dirt and the and the the small stones, right, the gems. Um, if you do that, right, then you restrict your will. You're no longer free. Uh, to do this, if the will is free, then the person, if if the if if reason means having free will, and free will is an inescapable thing of being a rational person, um, you a have the ability to choose wrong, and b based on Lady Philosophy's own arguments, if you do choose wrong, and you lose your rational capability, you enslave yourself then you might lose your ability to get out of it, right? Because, again, free will and reason are tied together. Um, So if you uh, sort of devolve to the point where you no longer are using reason at all, then you don't have free will at all. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. And so there we have it. There's the answers. Um... There was something I wanted to go back and touch up from this last section. Ways of knowing, intellectus, eternity, being outside of time, nature of God, God's knowledge. Okay. Um, I think I came back and connected all the things I wanted to connect there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no. I, I think the one thing that I was thinking of was um again you can see how um remember job we were talking about job right where job complains why do bad things happen to good people right and his friends are like obviously bad things don't happen to good people so figure out what you did wrong to make this happen to you right and he's like no man it's not how it works and i don't get it right like why is god being bad to me why why is he making all these bad things happen to me when i don't deserve it and God's response, notice God's response is not, come on now, Job, right? You do deserve it in some ways. You're not as righteous as all that. That's not the answer, right? God's answer is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe? God emphasizes the difference between his knowledge, what he can see, and what he knows, right? If you know this, then say so. If you can explain this, then say so. If you can tell me, all this again if you know all this stuff have you measured out the you know have you me- measured out the universe with a measuring rod right god asks job um a lot of people find that really unsatisfying there i know I've, i know many people who really dislike the end of job uh because like oh man what a cop out that is right job asks an honest question and wants an explanation and god is just like no i'm god suck it up Right, um, and it seems like just a power play on God's part. Lady philosophy would say, "No, that's you're missing the entire point of what God is. God is not just saying, I am bigger and stronger, and therefore shut up.' That's not what God is saying. God is pointing out, continually pointing out the limitations of Job's own understanding. Right? To put this into Lady philosophy's terms, Lady philosophy would say, "Dude, Job, you have reason, right?" That's awesome and everything, but you can't expect to understand everything about God. It's literally impossible. 
because you only have reason, you don't have access to intellectus. How could a temporal being expect to really grasp eternity, to be able to see with the vision of someone who is outside of time, uh, someone who is in simple possession of his being the way that God is in simple possession of his being? How can we expect it? Expect our bodies, our minds, our experiences, our very form of knowing, which is chopped up over time, which is all about process, right? Because it's temporal. How could we possibly... It, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable, even, to expect that that form of knowing is going to be able to grasp the simplicity of the divine vision. So there are going to be some things which don't make sense, which aren't accessible to reason. Uh, And of course, Christian doctrine is full of many of these things, quite deliberately, which are left unexplained by reason. Not because you're supposed to have faith which is opposed to reason in some way. Don't even get me started on the faith versus reason thing, which drives me crazy. But because it's not about reason, right? Um, You know, like the doctrine of the Trinity, right? God is three, God is also one. God is not one in three parts, not as not... No, God is three, God is one. Does that make sense? No, it makes no sense on purpose, right? It is a contradiction, it is a paradox on purpose because it is a way, it it is a way of pointing at something which is beyond human reason. If it's something that made sense in human rational terms, it would, by definition, be an inadequate description of God who transcends those things. Again, this is that very concept uh, is something that 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 kind of gets at the same thing that Lady Philosophy is uh, is pointing to there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, okay. So that's what I wanted to come back to, the whole question of, uh, of, of access to... And, and it's... Lady Philosophy does it. Again, the Bible does it too. Job does it. The Apostle Paul does it. Um, uh, do you remember the Apostle... And any of you who know the New Testament, do you remember the Apostle Paul's answer when he poses the question, sets it up, just like tees it up, ready to answer... Right? Um, how is it that okay? If 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 God knows everything and predetermines everything, right? If 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 everything is in God's control, and no one can withstand God's will, right? He's controlled everything and he has ultimate power. Then why does he criticize us for doing some things, right? I mean, so like if if how can he blame us for sinning if like everything that happens happens because he wants it to happen that way? Doesn't that mean that God wills our sin too? Then why do we get in trouble when we sin, right? Paul asks this question in Romans chapter 9. He's got it all set up, right? Uh, I remember the first time I read that passage and I was like, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm so glad Paul asked that question. I can't wait to see Paul's answer. Do you remember the answer? Exactly. Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God, right? He just flat, he, he, starts, he starts paraphrasing Job. The end of Job. Who are you? To question, right? Shall the thing formed say to the one that formed it, why have you made me thus? And again, it seems to so many like the biggest cop out on earth, right? Because it's just like saying, well, hang on. But no, it, you just showed how it didn't make sense. And now we're just supposed to leave it. 
Yeah, uh-huh, exactly. Uh, that's, in fact, the rational thing to do, Lady Philosophy would argue, right? Because you can't expect, uh, you can't expect God, God's nature and how God perceives and understands things uh, to, uh, to, to make sense from the standpoint of reason. Now, what Lady Philosophy does here, Lady Philosophy is only using reason, Right and is indeed constructing the very concepts of eternity and intellectus out of reason, right? Um, and so, in a sense, all of this is just kind of gesturing towards that thing. There is the rational conclusion uh, that intellectus exists, but it's still just reason, right? We're still only using reason to get there. Just like your dog might observe, right, with sense and imagination, that you make decisions on some other basis, right? So... Uh, by empirical observation, your dog can probably see that you do things differently than 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 she does, right? I'm thinking of my dog, uh, Abby. Um, but they're not going to get it, right? Even if they could speculate that you have some other way of of knowing, right? And we're in the same position with God. Um, I've said before that I I find. Uh, Boethius's answer to this to the free will question the most satisfying one that I know of um, and uh, uh, and I I would say that again um, uh, the uh, other thing of course there's a there's plenty of Tolkien application we could do thinking about this stuff go back and reread the Aino Lindelay now right and think through the Aino Lindelay and the question of time and the question of uh, cause and effect and foreknowledge and free will. Um, just just read the Aino Lindelay, which I find to be one of the most fascinating literary applications of many of these ideas that Boethius is putting forth, especially, of course, Iluvatar's speech to Melkor at the end of the Discord, right, at the end of the music of the Ainur. No one is able to alter the music in his despite. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. That's the end of Boethius. But I want to end. I want to. I, I want to. I want to do some fun. And uh, hey, Richard's back. Richard, you're back just in time. Uh, let's look at the Anglo-Saxon fun with the Anglo-Saxon adaptation from Richard Rowland. Um, uh, this is great stuff. Okay. Richard says, When the Old English Boethius is mentioned in summary, one of the first things which is nearly always said about it, you can see this in Irving and Godden's introduction in the very excellent facing text volume from the Dumbarton Oaks Medieval Library, plug, plug, is that Alfred repudiates pagan myths more explicitly than the Latin original. Remember this came up uh, early on when we were talking about the Latin Boethius, and you guys, you know, a couple of you were saying, like, you know, in what sense are the pagan myths being invoked? And you know, he keeps talking about, you know, the pagan gods. What's the status of that? You know, if if Boethius is Christian and all that, that came up. So uh, so the, the traditional teaching on the Anglo-Saxon uh, adaptation is that the Anglo-Saxon distances itself more uh, from the from the pre-Christian stuff than the Latin does. That may not be untrue, but the way it's often phrased tends to be more reductionist than the text supports. Actually, Alfred, who is probably involved in the in the translation, and we're 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 considering it uh, Alfred's work for simplicity of reference. Actually, Alfred is quite at home with pre-Christian mythology. Actually, adding in some bits which are not even there in the Latin original. This is fun. 
Wisdom and reason, remember there's no lady philosophy, right? Uh, wisdom and reason refer to Plato and Aristotle throughout as our philosophers, and are more explicit about just what use of these old what what the use of these old pre-Christian stories are. I want to give you three examples that illustrate this point. Okay. The first example is the story of Orpheus. You remember the Orpheus poem, which, although given in prose, is introduced with this short poem. Uh, say, uh, in modern English translation here. A man would be happy in every respect on earth if he could see the purest heavenly bright stream, noble source of every good, and could cast away, himself, cast away from himself the black mist, the mind's darkness. Yet with God's help, we shall remedy your mind with old and false stories, so that you can better find the correct path to heaven, the eternal residence of our souls. You'll remember that the Orpheus poem is given in the Latin original as kind of a cautionary tale, right? Orpheus lost by looking back, right? Uh, the the moral of the Orpheus poem as it's given at the end of book three, if, I rem- if I'm recalling correctly, is don't look back, don't look down, right? Um, uh, d- keep your eye focused up on God and don't turn back uh, because if you do, you could get drawn back. So setting this up, what does Alfred give us, right? So notice Alfred is giving us like the application in advance, right? A man would be happy in every respect if he could see the purest heavenly bright stream and could cast away from himself the black mist, the mind's darkness, right? That's the moral of the story. But yet, with God's help, we shall remedy your mind with old and false stories. But we're going to tell you, I'm going to tell you stories, old and false stories, right? Uh, so that you can better find the correct path. It's going to help you to get this principle that I just said, if I tell you old and false stories, right? The old and false stories here are aeldum and leasum. Old English leas means something which is false or untrue. Taken on its own, it could be seen as a censure of the story of Orpheus. Yet wisdom goes on to say that these old and false stories, a categorization which might come as easily from Plato as from Alcuin, Alcuin was a, 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 a... a, an Anglo-Saxon cleric who was famously uh, unfriendly to pagan stuff, who wanted he was like Bible all the time, uh, uh, you know, stop uh, stop telling those pagan stories and tell gospel stories instead. Uh, anyway, uh, so these old and false stories are necessary tools for mind's remedy. Without them, it would be much more difficult to show him the correct path to heaven. Alfred goes on to give the full Orpheus story in prose, ending with this moral. These false stories teach everyone who wishes to flee the darkness of hell and come to the light of the true God, that he should not look behind him to his old evils. So clearly for Alfred, false is not the same as useless. Okay. The second example is a little more complex. It comes during the discourse in Book 3. In the Latin original, there is a brief mention of the Titanomachia. Kudos, Richard, that is an awesome word, meaning the fight with the giants, the fight between uh, uh, the, uh, the giants who were assailing heaven and, and the Olympian gods who were fighting against them. It runs thus in James's translation. Um, that is, if, if this is in the, the, Latin tra- the translation from the Latin. Thou hast heard the story of the giants assailing heaven, but a beneficent strength disposed of them also as they deserved. That's it. That's what the Latin says, right? Now, here it is in Alfred's translation. 
I know that you have often heard tell in old false stories that Jove, the son of Saturn, was supposedly the highest god over all the other gods, and he was the son of heaven and ruled in the heavens. And giants were supposedly the sons of earth and ruled over the earth. And those were, as it were, sisters' sons, because he was the son of heaven and they of earth. And then the giants were envious that he had their kingdom and wanted to destroy heaven under him. Then he sent thunder, lightning, and winds, and destroyed all their work by that means, and killed the giants themselves. Themselves. Such false stories they made, and could easily have told a true story if the lies had not been sweeter to them, yet one very like these. They could have said, this is still Alfred talking, they could have said, what folly the giant Nimrod worked. This Nimrod was the son of Cus. Cus was Ham's son, Ham Noah's. This Nimrod ordered the building of a tower on the field that was called Senar, and in the, na- and in the nation that was called Dira, very near the city which is now called Babylon. They did that because they wished to know about to know how high it was to heaven, and how thick it was, and how firm, or what was above it. But it came about, as was fitting, that the divine power scattered them before they were allowed to complete it, and cast down the tower, and killed many of them, and divided their speech into seventy-two languages. So it befalls everyone who contends against divine power. No honor accrues to them from that, but that which they had before is lessened. Okay. Isn't that cool? One line in the Latin, right? Thou hast heard the story of the giants assailing heaven, but a beneficent strength disposed of them also as they deserved. Right? Not only does he give the full story, uh, the full mythological story, but then he goes on to give the parallel story from the Bible, sort of from the Bible, right? Loosely from the Bible. Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, Okay, Uh, Richard goes on. Note that the Old English version of the story is several orders of magnitude longer. Alfred mentions that you might have heard an Aeldum Leasum Spellum about Jove and the Titans, but in case you haven't, he gives you the full story. Then, mentioning that this story is false, but bears some similarity to a true story, he proceeds to give us the whole Babel story, which introdu- which includes Nimrod, a giant. Right, so you can see that the true story is, sim- is very similar. Right, It includes a giant who wants to climb up into heaven. Everybody knows that Nimrod was a giant, by the way. That Nimrod was involved in the building of the Tower of Babel, and he was a giant. This is known. Just like it's known that it was 72 languages that the people were divided into. Right. Um, if your version of the Bible doesn't include that information, don't worry about it. But just, uh, uh, just trust us. We know these things in the Middle Ages. Okay. Uh, right. <clears throat> now it's possible to read this as simply a, De- a Deacon Alcuin style denouncement of the old pagan stories, but that reading is lazy. As any good Anglo-Saxon reader would know, you have to pay attention to what is not being said. And what is most certainly not being said is that Alfred seems to have a real taste for these sorts of stories. So much so that not only does he not redact them, he's not cutting it out, right? But he expands upon them and then uses denouncing stories about giants as a convenient vehicle for introducing more giant stories into the text. In my reading of the text, I have not been able to find a single instance where Alfred redacts Redacts one of Boethius's references to pagan mythology. He never cuts any of it out. His tendency, in fact, seems to be to expand these references. One last example. In Meter 10, which corresponds to the song about the futility of earthly glory, Book 2, Meter 7 in the original, Alfred apparently finds that Brutus and Cato are insufficient, so he throws in a reference to Wieland. 
a forge god, trickster god, and folk hero from the northern Germanic mythology. The Anglo-Saxons seemed to really have liked his story, and I would be interested to see what Lady Philosophy had to say about how he handled his misfortunes. Where now are the bones of Wise Wayland, the goldsmith, who was previously very famous? I said the bones of Wise Wayland, because the skill which Christ grants to any earthly dweller cannot be lost by him. Nor can anyone ever deprive a wretch of his skill more easily than any man can divert and turn aside the sun and this swift firmament from its correct course. Who now knows in which mound the bones of Wise Wayland cover the earth? Wieland seems to be treated here as a man, not a god, but everyone in Alfred's day would have known that he had once been worshipped as, and indeed, over the Danish side of the island, he was still being worshipped as a god. The Anglo-Saxon impulse, when coming into contact with the pre-Christian religions of Europe, was to integrate and preserve these things. I expect there was something in the Orpheus myth, Orpheus's skill as a harper for one, gets several pages, which appealed to the Anglo-Saxon poetic imagination. And of course, Jove's battle with the titans slash giants is right up their alley. And when trying to contextualize the fleeting nature of earthly fame, Alfred thinks of Wieland first. Oh, and the person responsible for making Boethius famous in the Middle Ages to begin with? Deacon Alcuin. In 796, he brings it to the attention of the Carolingian world. The rest, as they say, is history. I wonder if he had a soft spot for giants. Thanks, Richard. Really, really cool stuff. Um, uh, uh, very much, uh, very, very, very much fun. Yes, Karita thinks that the goldsmith, who is previously very famous, is uh, is, is is very funny. Uh, it is. It is. Um, yeah, and uh, Richard Josiah is thinking of the you know when uh, in 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 looking at the the relationship with the pagan stories, Josiah is thinking of to the one who said that myths were lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly does uh, does does spring to mind there, doesn't it, Josiah? Um, okay, very good. Uh, yes, Stephen, Nimrod is one of the giants who is bound in hell, uh, in, in, in Dante. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you'll see, you'll see Nimrod among the giants for that reason. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Thanks, Richard. That was really, uh, a really fun, uh, trip through looking at some of the ways in which the Anglo-Saxon text is, is working differently. Their relationship with the pagan material, I agree, is totally fascinating uh, and really interesting to sort of see. I mean, you can see how it's it's really it is trying to stay true to the spirit of Lady Philosophy's argument, right? But it's uh, uh, it does come out rather differently the way they do it. All right, I'm gonna finally let you guys go, and that was not even too bad, right? Not even less than two and a half hours. I went less than half an hour over to finish my 33 slides tonight. How about that? So thanks, everybody, for joining me. I have been looking forward to going through the Consolation of Philosophy with you guys for years and years. I am so glad to have finally gotten the opportunity. Thanks, everybody, who uh, has joined me and stuck with me through the entire analysis. Don't forget, we're on to the treason of Isengard next. Uh, as we continue our trip through the manuscript history of The Lord of the Rings, uh, which we began in The Return of the Shadow. And again, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, you can watch uh, the Return of the Shadow classes uh, on our YouTube channel. Go to the Signum University YouTube channel and you can find the Mythgard Academy playlists and the playlist for The Return of the Shadow. Um, and uh, I suspect if you go to YouTube and just search for Return of the Shadow, you'll probably come up with it too. Uh, and uh, uh, and of course, you can listen to if you just if you're an audio only kind of person, you can listen to them uh, on the Mythgard uh, Academy. 
podcast stream uh, in iTunes or um, on iTunes U. So thanks very much, everybody. I look forward to three weeks from tonight on the 19th of July. We will begin the Treason of Isengard, and I look forward to seeing you guys again then. Thanks, everybody. Bye!